Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is a perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life, there's no surrender. And there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through. to Barge Logic Political Talk, part of the growing conservative conversation, and also part of the Patriot Journalist Network. And you can find the Patriot Journalist Network by going to www.patriotjournalist.com. Tonight we'll have uh, special guest William Ryle on. Uh, before we have him on, we're going to go ahead and bring uh, on a couple of gentlemen who uh, focused him my way. But first we'll have uh, Kelly, thank you very much, Kelly, for coming on the show. How are you? Hey, doing good, doing good. I am really looking forward to hearing Mr. William here, and uh, we've had several conversations before. He's been doing a lot of activism for 20, 25 years, and uh, I hate to say this, but like me, yeah, he's an engineer, and uh, we get into the nitpicky nitty uh, really fine details of things, and we've talked history case law, uh, the Constitution, of course, the founders, 
And it's, it's it's actually a delight. It's maybe a trouble for the rest of you, but it's a delight to have um, such a logical mind um, come join us tonight. So I, you know, many good things to say about about him. So uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I, first of all, before we go a little further, I have to tell again my favorite joke about engineers. Um, what do engineers use for birth control? That would be their personalities. So anyway. <laughs> But, yeah, finer points and other things and kind of what he's working on. I'm looking forward to this. So, by the way, uh, hi, Bill. Well, he's not quite on yet. Uh, he was on, and then uh, he uh, – I did see him on the line, and then uh, the line got disconnected. So, hopefully, we'll be uh, having him uh, back on. And so, what we'll do is uh, bring in uh, Dan, because Dan's the one who gave us uh, me the idea to bring him on, and then you got him here. Uh, Kelly, I really appreciate it. So let's go ahead and get Dan in. And then uh, while you guys are uh, doing some introductions about him, uh, I'll try to uh, contact him and see about getting him back on. Go ahead. Thank you very much, Dan. How are you? Um, surprisingly well, considering that, that I'm running on fumes again this week, and it's only Wednesday. Uh, when I, I right. know Bill, yeah, uh, you and me both. I, I, if you if you were in Pennsylvania. Not just in eastern Pennsylvania, but especially here, then you know Bill Ryle. If you've been to any Liberty event of any kind, you've probably heard him speak. Even if he's not on the, the dais, if he's not on the agenda, if you brought up any kind of issue, he's the one who explained it to you in a constitutional manner. And when I met Kelly, I thought, ah, these guys, these guys are in sync. I'm in awe. I, I had considered myself to be a pretty legalistic-minded, uh, rational guy. Uh, you know, I, I, I deal with this in my job, and my, I'm a policy wonk for years. And my jaw drops when I'm listening to these guys because I learn stuff. Folks, pay close attention. Take notes. Listen to the show again if you have to. You will learn something tonight. In fact, I just saw Bill Ryle uh, last Wednesday. I was speaking at uh, Berks County Patriots on the Second Amendment. And just a few minutes before, I was late getting into, I wasn't late for my presentation, but they were starting to worry, Dan, where are you? They're sending messages. Where, where are you? You're, you're not in the hall. We don't know where you are. I was outside just listening. I, it, had there been, um, you know, a place to sit at his feet and listen, <laughs> I would have been listening to Bill Ryle, and I could have gone another half an hour and been late for my presentation. Uh, it was that fascinating. So you're in for a treat tonight, folks. I'm not hearing anything. So, uh, oh, there you go. Yeah, somebody. All right, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I came across him, oh gosh, I'd say a year and a half ago. We were looking into this uh, common law grand jury thing, and he wrote something. Actually, I heard about him through the common law grand jury, which I'm not a fan with because which common law are we talking about? There's so many. It's, uh, But he, he researches very extensively. And he challenged uh, these people with uh, nine questions that they never answered. But he's um, been in and out of court. He's got, uh, well, he just filed something recently. I don't have to tell us about. In my and, home uh, county. Oh, yeah. Which county is that? Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania. We're also known, uh, coincidentally, it, it, he's not charged with murder, thank God. It's a traffic offense. But uh, And he'll tell you about it. 
But uh, we're also known as Sure Kill County because uh, as long as it's self-defense, you're okay here. And that's that's actually oh, cool. a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I always get encouraged when I hear um, – well, one of the things that got me motivated – um, in activism and other stuff with some older people and back presidential campaign back in 88. But um, I moved out to California and met some old timers that were and studied the law and the Constitution for a long time. They had inspired me. And then I kind of, they kind of helped fuel, fan the flames, if you will. And uh, and then I just, I don't know, kind of came an, an obsession, if you will, to study the Constitution, case law, things like that. So, you know, in, in many ways, I look up to what um, the seasoned folks have brought forth. And every now and then a little tidbit I'll catch, oh, I didn't know that, oh, I didn't know that, you know. And just recently uh, somebody pointed out that uh, just a couple days ago was the anniversary of Patrick Henry's speech in 1775, you know, the ask for me, give me liberty or give me death. That whole speech, if you ever read it, it's absolutely stunning. He basically says, look, we've been trying to, to be nice to the British We've been trying to communicate, here. here's our problems, folks. We've tried through petition. We've tried through remonstrance. We've tried this and that. And Patrick Henry basically said, look, all they're going to do is trample us even further the more we talk. And as for me, give me liberty and give me death. That's a quick summary of Patrick Henry's statement. And he really covered both sides because to go to war against the nation for your independence is a very serious uh, task. And so, you know, if you, if we think about this, our, our nation's history, how do we learn? Well, we learn from the elders. We learn from those who learn from those who learn from those who were actually there hand, handling a rifle during the Revolutionary War. So it's not just that these things are written down, but word of mouth uh, continuing from generations. And, uh, you know, it's, that's how liberty is really sustained. Then when you get people like me um, all excited about it, I can I can continue this to posterity as I have you know, little things with my son when he grabbed his uh, squirt gun and went to his uh, went to the uh, gun rally. He was so cute, uh, but he was in it with all his heart. So this this is it's really exciting. So anyway, I'm hopefully uh, William joined us. Well, while we're waiting for him, Patrick Henry also. We have him on the line, so let's go ahead and uh, get him onto the show. Uh, thank you very much, uh, William, for coming on. How are you tonight? I'm fine, thank you. It's a pleasure being with you tonight. Hey, William. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And I do hey, see Bill. a caller from 484 Area Code. Uh, we will get you on uh, the line at some point, but first we'll go through. Uh, our interview here with uh, Kelly and Dan. Go ahead, Kelly. I'm pretty much it's time for me to shut up. Let William. Uh, yeah, I'm hope uh, jury nullification is something he knows about. I hope we can cover as well as some other things he's got going on. I'd uh, certainly be like uh, like to uh, discuss nullification. It um, it is the rightful remedy, as uh, as Jefferson said. Yeah, Jefferson said, I consider trial by jury as the only anchor ever yet imagined by man by which a government can be held to the principles of its constitution. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, we've lost uh, a lot of the use of trial by juries, uh, you know, since the 1950s. But um, as far as nullification, of course, that's the the county at the county level where you have the trial jury and actually a grand jury can do the same thing. Um, but in Pennsylvania, uh, they limited grand juries significantly and they don't necessarily conduct them. But trial juries are being eliminated as well by intent. And, and um, in fact, I uh, <laughs> I was recently in court and the, uh, the judge, first of all, wouldn't let me talk at all about the Constitution, state or federal. And then he said if I had a jury, I wouldn't be able to talk about it. And um, and if I did, I'd be found in contempt. So what That's you ridiculous. have is, uh, uh, yes, at the ter- a uh, totalitarian state where uh, the judiciary is controlling everything. And that has been primarily my area of study for the last 24-plus years. And uh, what has been the role of certain attorneys and certain judges and certain professors of law in the destruction of our country. Uh, it's very well documented. But yeah, well, maybe maybe we should have a bigger picture of what jury nullification is. It's essentially, my understanding is, the jury member can vote his conscience, judge the law, and say not guilty. This is bogus. This is excessive criminal punishment. Or, you know what, nobody was harmed, not guilty. Sorry, I don't care how many laws you pass. It's, this is bogus. This is government out of control. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. It takes one person, and you have a hung jury, and then they might decide to prosecute again or not. But it's a citizenry nullifying um, unreasonable laws or penalties by their not guilty vote. It's nullifying it. That's why they call it jury nullification. So that's... Um, but, yeah, give us a little bit more about the history of what you've seen since the 50s. Well, little background, um, of course, those of, us, of, of the listeners who know about the story about William Penn, he was put on trial in uh, 1670 for preaching Quakerism in the streets of London. Now, at that time, the law was that only the Anglican church was the acceptable church and that to preach against it or any other religion, uh, if you were convicted, uh, the penalty was death. And so William, William Penn and William Meade were put on trial and it's called the hat trial because his father told what young William to behave himself. And when he went into the court to take his hat off and be respectful, now, he had studied a little law when he was in Paris, so he was prepared to do what he could to defend himself. And he did. He took his hat off, and the uh, judge ordered the tip staff to put the hat back on, and then they found William Penn in contempt. And um, at the gallery uh, was sympathetic to what had gone on. It was such a kangaroo court, if you will. But at any rate, it became known as a hat trial. And um, the uh, jury found Penn and William uh, William Penn and Meade not guilty, and the court threw the jury in jail. And finally, uh, eight of the jurors uh, acquiesced, but four held out. And uh, John Burchell, who was a rich uh, merchant at the time, said his his vote was not for sale. And ultimately, um, Penn wrote wrote a uh, petition for Rene Habeas Corpus to get the uh, jurors out of jail. 
the Queen interceded and uh, those four juries acquitted Penn and Meade. And so William Penn brought that strong, strong love for a jury to Pennsylvania. And in the law degree upon in England in 1682, one of the major planks, number uh, eight of the Declaration of Rights of that uh, document, secured the right to trial by jury in all cases. And as you trace the study of juries in Pennsylvania and therefore all of the states, Virginia as well as strong, um, you see that in civil cases you were entitled to a jury. In 1776, it said between controversies concerning property and between man and man, the right to trial by jury shall be deemed sacred. That was for civil cases. And in the criminal cases, in all criminal prosecutions, you're entitled to a trial of your peers, 12 men. And so the history of, of our country is very strong with respect to juries, but the attorneys have been and judges have been working for years to eliminate them, particularly since the war between the states. But even if you look back to um, uh, the 1792 case in front of uh, Chief Justice John Jay, where uh, I think that was um, Rilsford versus Georgia is the name of that case. And uh, John Jay, the Chief Justice, around when the Constitution was written, said that while he would like for the jury to uh, accept the law that he, had, he would present, they had the right and, in fact, the duty and responsibility to judge both the law and the facts. And that didn't begin to, didn't begin to change until after the war between the states and in 1895, there's a case called United States versus Spraff, or Spraff versus United States, I guess it is. And in that case, the Supreme Court of the United States said that unless there was a specific language in the state constitution, um, the jurors, though they had the right to judge the law, the court didn't have to tell them that they had that right. And so you have this continuous shift away from juries. In fact, I've read many times uh, in the in the documents that the judges and attorneys would like to eliminate juries altogether because um, it takes too long, it costs too much, and besides, the people don't understand the law anyway. And so they well, want... There's... Go ahead. Yeah. Well, there's some other people that got rid of trial by jury. Um, the Weimar Republic, 1924, they decided to get rid of trial by jury. Oh, we just don't need this anymore. Within 20 years, 20 million people were murdered because Adolf Hitler took over the country. 1917, 1918, when the communist revolution in Russia, oh, let's get rid of trial by jury. Both countries had this from the mid-1800s, and after they got rid of it, within 20 years, both countries murdered over 20 million people. Yeah, and the only reason that's not going on in America now, and there is a lot of uh, incarceration and death, frankly, because we don't have the people protecting our our fellow citizens, um, is because we have the right to bear arms. And they haven't stolen that totally yet. But this idea of eliminating the um, juries, interesting, I, as I said, I was in court recently, and the judge said I wasn't entitled to a trial by jury in this um, summary offense, a minor offense, petty crime. And an attorney wrote me uh, 
in response to another case I'm involved with, that I wasn't entitled to a trial by jury because of a case that was decided in 1968. It's Duncan versus Louisiana. You can see that at 391 U.S. 145, and it's a 1968 case. And they, out of thin air, they created this distinction between serious crimes and petty crimes. And the Supreme Court, though they said that that line was not well-defined, in fact, in Louisiana at the time, uh, you were only entitled to a jury unless you in, unless you were facing hard labor. And that's what prompted the case to be brought to the United States Supreme Court through the Louisiana State Supreme Court using the so-called 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court established an arbitrary time that if you weren't facing more than six months in prison, then you're not entitled to a trial by jury. And the uh, reference there was that there was no substantial evidence that in the colonies and in England at the time of the writing of the Constitution were these petty tribes trialed by, tried by a jury. Well, clearly it's a lie because in Pennsylvania um, you're entitled to a jury in all cases, and that's supported by our history. But here's the justification that the court used, the Supreme Court. The possible consequence to defendants from conviction for petty offenses has been thought in, uh, insufficient to outweigh the benefits to efficient law enforcement and simplify judicial administration resulting from the availability of speedy and inexpensive non-jury adjudications, end quote. Now, that's tyranny at its best because there are many, many decisions that the Supreme Court has made, and they base this on the Sixth Amendment. Um, and they went on for great lengths in the decision talking about how fundamental and important juries were in keeping the mischief of courts under control, and then came up with this ludicrous decision in order to minimize the number of juries in these petty offenses, and you're only going to spend time in jail or prison up to six months, then you don't have a jury. Now, that is so contrary to our fundamental law that it ought to scream to people that we're in deep trouble. And the solution is say no, and jury nullification is so important. But it's not the only nullification, is it? You have no, there's many others, but I, I want to throw in some points here about jury nullification. I've been kicked off jury, <clears throat> like jury number seven or nine, whatever it was, and do you know anything about jury nullification? Oh, I certainly do. And then they, they, I had a meeting with the judge and the uh, prosecutor and the defendant in private chambers after while we all went to lunch. And uh, well, what do you know about uh, jury nullification? Well, there's... Uh, uh, Sutherland versus Sewer, there's Buffalo versus Louisiana, there's Taylor versus Louisiana, yeah, that's an absolute right. Okay, well, we came back after lunch and they kicked me off the, uh, they kicked well, me off. And you knew too much, Kelly. At it. Yeah, well, that's, that was, what I'm saying is, if you know about jury nullification, when you get in the jury box, don't say a word about it. That's the best part, don't say <laughs> it, aren't they? Even when you're deliberating, because what the judge will tell you is you must follow my instructions. If you're not able to, do you have a conscientious objection? Well, yeah, that's the whole point of the jury. We use our conscience. You don't say a darn thing until your final vote. You don't even say a thing because one of the jurors will go to the judge 
they just say, oh, you're a jury notification? Oh, get them out, get them out. This is from FIJA, Fully Informed Jury Association. They have their strategies. Every now and then they get a victory. And it's just really disgusting that the judges are so tampering. Now, on the contrary, um, Justice um, Harlan Stone, uh, Chief Justice, 1941, said, the law itself, the law is, well, the, the law itself is on trial just as much as the cause to be decided. Oliver Wendell Holmes said the same thing. Patrick Henry said it brilliantly. Why do we love this trial by jury? Because it keeps the hand of oppression from cutting you off. In this, I have comfort. As long as I have my being, my neighbors will protect me. Um, they knew it. It's an incredible source of liberty. And in fact, juries in the, I don't know, 30s or 40s, in our nation's history, juries have, have nullified laws so many times that the legislature had to go back and get the laws off of the books. It's the citizenry saying, no, we ain't doing this. So it, it's absolutely stunning. And I hope somebody avoid many, many years for the rest of his life in jail because we passed out jury notification flyers. And then, and then when I got inside to watch the the hearing before the uh, board dire, which is where you select the jurors, what happened was um, the the prosecutor said, that guy over there, he's handing out these flyers, and he's tampering with the jury. That was the prosecutor. I knew her personally, long story. But she was pointing me out, and I'm like, whoa. The judge says, all right, let's see what he's got. The bailiff handed the document. The judge says, I'll take care of this. He never said another thing about it. When he said, I'll take care of it, all I did was look at it briefly, put it down, probably threw it in the trash. But the guy got off. He was facing a heck of a lot of years, and the time he had served was his punishment, and that was it. it was like He spent like uh, two months in jail, and then they let him out on bond and whatever. But See, that's they do not. The system does not want you to know you have this power to protect your fellow man, and that you can be protected by your neighbors. Well, I can tell you that in Pennsylvania, and I've experienced this in two cases, um, they have in fact been more strongly enforcing this idea that unless it's a serious crime, by definition of the United States Supreme Court, you're facing more than six months in prison. You don't get a jury. And, in fact, they've changed the court rules to insist on that. And when you bring it up, they just simply ignore you and proceed. Now, that particular issue is currently in two cases in the state Supreme Court by me. Uh, We'll see what the state Supreme Court does. Uh, Initially, they uh, disallowed my my filing. But we'll see on uh, whether they'll change their tune. But the point being is, the system, the judicial system is so corrupt and so much in charge of everything. And, of course, as much as I don't like Hamilton, he warned in Federal the 78 that the judiciary was to be the weakest of the three branches and that if it ever joined with either of the other two, we'd have a great deal to fear. Well, it's taken over all three. Um, mm-hmm. And so what we have is a great deal to to fear at all levels, the the General Assembly, the legislature, is controlled by not because there are all not many attorneys in the General Assembly, although there are quite a few. Um, they're not they do what they're told to do, and I can tell you that in Pennsylvania, in 1968, they had a constitutional convention, 
called unconstitutional, but nevertheless did. And they rewrote the judiciary section and put in that change something they've been working on since 1920. And the provision is this. It said Article 5, Section 10C of the Pennsylvania Constitution. It says under administration, of course, all the attorneys and judges work for the Supreme Court, and that's the supreme power. But at the end of it, initially, they've added others since then, but it said all laws shall be suspended to the extent they're inconsistent with rules prescribed under these provisions. All laws. And they have exercised that aggressively. So if they don't like a law, the court writes a rule, and by the Constitution, allegedly, uh, that rule is superior to the to the law. And I've seen that discussed in the Senate as an example in a committee meeting where the Senate was upset with what the courts were doing and they were trying to correct it. And an attorney from Philadelphia stood up and said, it doesn't really matter what you do here. If the court doesn't like it, they'll write a rule and suspend the law. And he sat down. That's how it works. And if you have a unified judicial system in your state, they've got that provision in there somewhere. Or they've created a unified law across the state that allows them to do it. And um, along the, all the states. So be very, very leery of um, what goes on in the courts, obviously. Yeah, so I go back to the simple point of if you get on a jury, you end up as a juror, do not open your mouth about jury nullification. When you're in deliberating, do not say a single thing if you're going to vote no. Because that judge, in California at least, when they find out you know, that judge will come right in the jury room deliberating, which you're not supposed to do, and they'll kick you off. <laughs> That's how well, bad the system is. Yeah, but you got to have a jury to start with. And in Pennsylvania, as an example, where they collect all the revenue, these petty crimes, today you're not entitled to a jury at all, and the rules are written that way. And so well, I'd like to interject well for a moment. Look, yeah, um, I was going to say, let's, let's go ahead and bring Dan in. Go ahead, Dan. Well, just very briefly, because I'm fascinated. I, I love listening to the two of these guys. It's, it, it's a shame that we don't have hours and hours and hours. Um, just to remind anyone who's in Pennsylvania that we have an unusual situation this year. It's un, almost unprecedented, I think. Three Supreme Court justice openings. One, because he had to retire uh, due to age, and that's a statutory requirement that may get changed in the future. And two, because they're basically crooks. And why wouldn't the people who want to control us choose to control us through the judiciary? Most states, they're not elected like they are here in Pennsylvania. And it's a very small number of people, and they're generally really, really well-knit into the political establishment. But we have three, and if in Pennsylvania you want to see all of the Supreme Court candidates, I think they're all going to be there, um, at the uh, Pennsylvania Leadership Conference, which is coming up on April 17th and 18th, there's going to be a forum. Uh, all of them are going to be up there, all of the people who are vying for those three Supreme Court justice spots. And my friend Simon Campbell, who is a naturalized American citizen from Britain, he's going to sit there with his British accent and, oh, 
oh, it's going to be delightful because he takes no prisoners and puts up with no BS. And I would venture to say he is as smart or smarter than the smartest one up there. This is going to be a joy to behold. And uh, as if we can get this on uh, video, I will be sharing it with people. I just wanted to mention that's a, something that people forget when they start to hear someone like Kelly or Bill talk about the Constitution, about all these precedents, and they start yawning. Don't yawn, folks. It's a story of people, our people, and what happened to them. And this is real life. There are really people in your lives, in your families, in your workplace, in your community, who are being racked over the coals for no good reason, for laws that shouldn't be in existence in the first place, due to convenience, convenience today at work. And then I'll give it right back to our, our, our illustrious guest and, and Kelly, um, who was our panelist. Today at work, a woman told me a story about a child that it was, it was in her family, it wasn't her child, a, a nephew, beaten and abused on videotape, eight minutes of horrific videotape. And they went to prosecution, and the prosecutor assured them that this was not going to be dropped, this was not going to be plea bargained. This person, from what I heard, and I believe my coworker, she doesn't make up stuff, just chasing this poor kid around with a spoon, beating on him, uh, throwing him up against the wall, saying the most vile things. I mean, just over-the-top child abuse. The stuff you see on, on, uh, on the videos, on the Internet, and you go like, oh, my God, that's horrible. Well, guess what they just did today? They dropped all charges down to one case of one count of simple assault because, as Bill said, well, it's more convenient and cost-effective. But is it justice? There are people getting off who shouldn't, and there are people going to jail who didn't necessarily do anything wrong or cause any harm to anyone. Back to uh, back to you guys. Well, this is Bill. Well, Amy, can I make comment on that? Go ahead. Sure. Go ahead. No, it's about bringing over to you, Mom, if you want to make uh, any comment on Dan Sanders. Yeah, the the uh, whole idea to intimidate and frighten people and control them and collect a lot of revenue. If you think about all these petty crimes, most of them are not crimes at all. No, Nobody has been harmed. No property has been damaged. No rights have been violated. There is no victim. And it all is about the state collecting the revenue and terrifying people to comply to make sure mm-hmm. that they behave themselves. And it, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, you have to have a driver's license uh, although, in fact, that's part of liberty. You don't have to have one. It's so well documented, that effect. And yet they do it and make you get a driver's license, which then gives the state jurisdiction. You apply for it, and then they, of course, will give it to you because without it, you don't have they don't have any authority. And then you have to follow all the rules they make. And if you violate one of them, you're guilty. And you've got to prove that you didn't do it. 180 degrees the way it's supposed to be, and most of those crimes, alleged crimes, are not crimes at all. And if you don't have the papers that they want now, I'm living proof, um, they think they can put you in jail. And, in fact, I'm facing 90 days in jail for not having their papers, even though 
uh, the records show that I don't have a driver's license, and I choose not to have. Yeah, your your driver's license thing is interesting. I want to go into uh, just kind of sum up with the the jury. Here's some other quotes. Um, This is uh, John Jay. The jury has a right to judge both the law as well as the facts and controversy, 1789. 1795, uh, Samuel Chase, who was assigned to the Declaration, the jury has right to determine both the law and the fact. Alexander Hamilton, jurors should acquit even against the judge's instruction. If exercising their judgment with discretion and honesty, they have a clear conviction the charge of the court is wrong. Oliver to Holmes, he was quite famous, ends up on a stamp. The jury has the power to bring a verdict in the teeth of both law and fact. Here's another one, uh, 1972. The pages of history shine on instances of the jury's exercise of its prerogative to disregard instructions of the judge. And so we see this tampering. Now, I figured out a reverse psychology approach. I was in Santa Cruz on a project, and they had this karaoke place called the jury room, obviously. It was it was a bar. And I'm like, why is this place called the jury room? Oh, the courthouse is right across the street. Oh, so I could maybe somebody that works at the court could come across the street and get uh, all slockered during lunch lunch hour. Well, anyway, so I, I put together this flyer, <clears throat> how to get off of jury duty. But I put it in the in the bar, a whole bunch of them. How to get off jury duty. Uh, when you're, if you're honest... If you're in the uh, jury box, you just stand up and, and read this statement. You know, the jury has right to, to determine both the law and the fact. Yes, I know about jury nullification. Boom, you're dismissed. That's how you get off of it. Now, well, what happened is if five, six, seven, eight, ten people said the same thing, sure they would get off the case, but the rest of the jury pool would be educated of this power. <laughs> They'd be um, uh, tainted. Because what happens when they do voir dire, if you're going to call it jury duty, I have several times, they basically they pack 70 people into the courtroom, which, by the way, is, is a violation of the fire code, but I won't get into that. So uh, <laughs> they pack them in standing room only. And could you imagine 10 people who want to get off jury duty read these statements to the entire, entire jury pool? <laughs> Well, yeah, that's that's comical, but the question is, first of all, are they going to have a jury? And secondly, if you get off the jury, I think your first suggestion is be quiet and then exercise that knowledge at the vote. Uh, Yes, in fact, uh, my audience, though, is is, uh, innocent. Right, Um, but my audience for this flyer, my audience is for the people that want to get off jury duty, they have no clue. They have no understanding. But every time somebody reads from the flyer, they get off. Woohoo, I'm off. Oh, whoops, the rest of the pool is educated. <laughs> right. Well, I don't think people should these, get off jury duty. I, I think we should be glad to take our jury duty. And I, what Bill is saying is absolutely correct. Um, you can sit there and say nothing except, uh, you know, answer the questions yes or no. Yeah, have you been convicted of a crime? Do you know someone who's been convicted of a crime? Have you been the victim of a crime? Do you know police officers? They ask these questions so that uh, the uh, peremptory challenges and the challenges for cause can go out. And can you be fair? Can you listen to the? Will you follow the instructions? When I somebody asks me, will I follow instructions? 
I'm, I don't have oppositional defiant disorder or whatever the pop psychologists of the statists uh, institutes are calling <laughs> uh, being rebellious. I, I'm not rebellious. I have absolutely no problem following orders. When I show up, for instance, uh, there's a car accident on the way home and I stop. If somebody is competent and in command and they know what they're doing, this is prior to any uh, you know, professionals or, or volunteers with equipment showing up. I do what they say. And if there's nobody there who's competent and you know, coordinated, I'll tell people, because I have that experience, what to do. Get that person off the street. Keep that person warm. Don't move that person. Let's get this car off the road. Whatever it takes until the professionals who have the equipment show up so that they can take over. Um, so most of us are not oppositionally defiant. And if a judge gives me a reasonable order that is in compliance with my understanding of what right is, what what law is, what's proper, I have no problem. But if the judge tells me that, that um, for instance, let's assume that uh, they want to um, just seize someone's goods because he has too much. They want to take his stuff because they want it for themselves. I don't care if there's a law that says that. That's patently unfair. And I'm going to follow the judge's uh, instructions while they're reasonable and and I think that they're proper. But if he tells me to do that, I don't have to follow it. It's not reasonable. It's not proper. And all I have to do at the final result is say, no, no, I don't care if you're all voting. You know, 11 of you are voting that he's guilty. I'm voting not guilty. I'm not changing my vote. It's a hung jury. Retry him or declare a mistrial. Whatever you want to do. I'm not changing my mind. It's just not. I mean, you don't have to discuss it, and you don't have to explain your reasons why. They'll ask you. The other people on the jury will ask you. The prosecutor will ask you. The judge. And you can simply say, because that's how I feel. I've thought about it. I'm not discussing it with you. I don't have to. You can't make me. I'm not changing my mind. Well, I... Yeah, Dan, you're absolutely right. The, the, you have to be strong when to do that. Uh, it's sort of like being strong in uh, individual nullification, I term that, if you are civilly disobedient, if you will, if you take a stand that what the government's asking you to do is un, immoral or unconstitutional, or it doesn't apply or couldn't apply to humans because we have rights that are protected by the law, Um that that's individual nullification and it's powerful it's risky and that's why we need more people gathering together and and networking together to stand together um and then of course the government has a harder time uh abusing you but the same thing in in getting your county uh commissioners as example to be constitutional and say no uh, getting the state to say no as far as state nullification is concerned. So there's really this three levels of the nullification against the central government. And likewise, the central government is supposed to nullify uh, or resist the state usurpations. I think you'll find that governments at all levels today... Well, there, there are two are ways on those three levels. There are two ways of nullifying any uh, official order. And the first is a private way. And that, that is incredibly effective, and it doesn't require coordination, and there's nothing they can do about it because they can't prove it. That's the example where everybody's on the highway and the speed limit is 
55, and it's a limited access highway with, uh, you know, divided highway and, and, you know, the only on-ramps and off-ramps. It's beautiful, well-graded, well-curved, well-lit, and everyone's doing 75 miles an hour. Everyone has made the personal decision on their own that they're just not going to follow that law. It's foolish. We don't need to go that slow just because there's a number on a, on a stick somewhere that says so. And the only thing the government can do there is to catch one person. Everyone slows down for a moment, and then they speed back up, and it's, it's kind of like a lottery of who's going to pay the fine today because they can't catch that many people that quickly. So the rest of us all get to work. All right. Now, the other way is more dangerous, coordinated effort. If there were a, uh, you remember that song Convoy from the 1970s? If, if a whole bunch of people decided openly that they were going to do this, if it was publicized that everyone is going 75 that morning, period, no matter what, we don't care what the cops are going to do, and we had big speeches and a rally, and they might put out spike strips or try and stop everyone on the highway. But if there's enough people then they can't do a damn thing. Uh, recently in Washington State, they passed an incredibly vague and unconstitutional anti-gun law. And over 1,000, I think close to 2,000 people showed up on the steps of the state capitol across from a courthouse with their long guns, with their uh, magazines that were too voluminous, too many rounds in there. And then they proceeded to go a step further and they bought and sold guns without paperwork, committing felonies under Washington state law right there in front of everyone. And there were thousands of them. And the, the, wow. the few police who were not on their side, because there's a lot of Oath Keepers out there, uh, they, they were frustrated. There wasn't a damn thing they could do because if they tried to do anything, they'd just be surrounded. And nobody was going to shoot them. They knew that. They knew that these were peaceful people, not criminals. But unless they were willing to start shooting Dozens of people, you know, you don't have to shoot when, uh, when you've got uh, 50 or 100 people surrounding one. You don't have to shoot anybody. You don't even have to raise a hand to them. All you have to do is, like, corral them. They can't do anything unless they're willing to shoot you, and that looks really bad on camera. A lot of the other uh, uh, local law enforcement and, and, like, the county sheriff there, and I'd like to hear you both talk about the authority of a county sheriff and what it's supposed to be. But the county sheriff said, I'm not arresting anyone. The law is wrong. They're right. Uh, I'm with them. I mean, let's go ahead and well, touch that. But there is a, a question real, real quick uh, that we've got to do here is uh, we want to hear from the Patriot Journalist Network. You're not just listening to a show. You're part of the powerful voice of the conservative conversation on Blog Talk Radio. Nothing worthwhile has ever been accomplished without teamwork. PJNet invites you to help make a difference by adding your voice to the team, grassroots, conservatives working together to take our country back. To find out more, check out the PJNet hashtag and visit our website at patriotjournalist.com. Let PJNet add our muscle to your hustle. And let's say we have about, I would say, 30 minutes uh, before we have to uh, play the audio from our previous interview with Matt Bevan, who we will be having on the show next Wednesday, April the 1st, talking about his gubernatorial campaign. Uh, if uh, folks recall, we had uh, Mr. Bevan on here about 11 months ago, uh, where he was talking about his primary campaign against Mitch McConnell, uh, which we know how that turned out. Uh, but, however, 
Uh, he is running for governor there in Kentucky, so it'll be interesting to have him back on. And I think as a nice precursor for having him on next week, we'll play that interview uh, that we had with him on that show. So we'll be doing that uh, in about a half an hour. So two things I'd like to do uh, before then is, yes, definitely uh, talk about what you brought up, uh, Dan, uh, when it comes to when it comes to that. So we definitely want to yeah, hear from him on that. But I also was, was reading your, your bio and, of course, me being the tree hugger that I am, I would like to hear about uh, your experiences with one of the groups that we have here that you either do still belong to or uh, or did belong to, and that is the uh, Communities Alliance for Responsible Eco-Farming. I'd like to hear about that. Uh, but first, uh, Dan, go ahead and reintroduce what you'd like uh, them to talk about, and then we'll move on. Go ahead, Dan. Well, just uh, I've heard Kelly and uh, Bill at different times discuss the primacy of what a county sheriff is supposed to be versus what they are in reality in most places in this country. And I've noted that some county sheriffs have been starting to realize their responsibility and step up. Um, but the background on this and the legalities make a big difference. So I'd like to hear what uh, Bill and Kelly have to say about that. Well, I'll kick it off. Um, I um, learned about the power of the sheriff primarily or initially from Sheriff Richard Mack and I worked with him for a number of years and he asked me to be the state coordinator in Pennsylvania in 2008 late 2008 I accepted that honor and we started to try to support what he was doing and no sheriff left behind and handing out uh, Sheriff Mack's book County Sheriff of America's Last Hope and that that effort was very successful, and then we decided here in Pennsylvania to start what I've called the County Sheriff Brigades of Pennsylvania, and then establish individual county brigades. The name was not mine. It came from a lady out in um, Butler County, and I thought it was a good idea, and we started doing that. And the whole premise there is to instruct the sheriff in other county uh, that the sheriff is the chief, in today's terms, the chief law enforcement officer of the county. He's the chief executive officer and always has been. Now, most uh, district attorneys think they are and they can't possibly be because they are officers of the judicial branch. They are attorneys. And if he's the chief executive branch, then there's no separation of powers. So we need to get the sheriffs to understand that they have this responsibility and duty and to stop being lapdogs, if you will, for the courts. Now, the latest authority or uh, books on the subject you might want to read, and that is Anderson on Sheriffs, a treatise on the law of sheriffs, coroners, and constables. <clears throat> it's a document, two volumes. Um, my, my version is eight and a half by 14. Very small print on both sides of the paper. And um, it tells you more than you want to know about sheriffs, constables, and, and uh, coroners. But it is, in fact, a recognized um, summary of uh, the written authorities for those bodies. It was written by an attorney in 1941. It's no longer in print, but you can read it, if you like, on our website, the 
sheriffbrigadesofpennsylvania.com, or pen.com, and give that again in a little while. But taking from the important parts of those books, Volume 1, Chapter 2 is an example, Powers and Duties of Sheriffs Implied by the Name and Nature of His Office. And it explains that it's an ancient and uh, uh, job of, of authority, and they work for the king, and there's no higher peace officer in the county. It also goes on to explain that if there's a constitutional office, their duties are as they were when the Constitution was written, and they cannot be dis- diminished by the legislature. They can be added to, but they must be paid for. And the courts have no authority to uh, diminish or enhance a a sheriff's duties and responsibilities. Now, unfortunately, that's not the way it's run. The courts have been dictating what the county uh, sheriffs do for years. And just of late, you may know that um, in Connecticut, they eliminated all the sheriffs and went to marshals um, who are statutory, not constitutional, was in it Delaware, Delaware or Connecticut? In Connecticut, that was some time ago. But in oh. Delaware, they've just the the actually Bo Biden, uh, the vice president's son, who is attorney general, ruled that the sheriff has no arrest power, no investigative power, and in fact, he's just a, a courthouse lackey. And of course, the sheriff in Sussex County, um, Christopher, um, we had him on the show. That's great, and he's a tremendously uh, courageous man in fighting for it. Point is, I just learned the other night at a brigade meeting uh, here in Berks County, where the sheriff of Berks County was speaking, that the sheriffs in Pennsylvania are concerned about that. They, of course, don't want to lose their positions. Uh, They don't want to lose the sheriffs. And so they're interested in what the brigades are doing. And uh, my message to the people is to organize and be there to support um, the sheriff's office as long as they're doing their duty according to the Constitution, uh, and then instruct them when they're not. And on our website... That that old James Gardner film, Support Your Local Sheriff. Right. In fact, there's a bumper sticker you can buy that says that. But on the website, and I would encourage people to visit the website, in Maricopa County, Arizona, Sheriff Joe Opaio has about 3,700 full-time posse members. Now, that was started in 1942, as I remember. But you can get on their website, Maricopa County Posse. You can just type that in, or you can get a link off our website. And learn they're doing in Maricopa County. They have all sorts of posses that do different things, not just help in arrest, but they have search and rescue. They have air patrol. Probably the funniest one is they have a retirement home. Actually, it's two now, Sun City and Sun City West. And they have elderly members. They're in uniform. They have a badge. They even have now have a car. Um, and they do what I guess we would call community watch. But they walk around and make sure things are all right and help people. And if they get in trouble or need help, they call the sheriff's office and, of course, the Deputies are dispatched. So there's a lot of things that we can do and learn from uh, what's going on in various communities, particularly in Arizona and Maricopa County, 
I would love to see that uh, and repl- replicated in all the counties. Um, and that's sort of that's what the brigades are doing, county by county here in Pennsylvania. Um, it's slow because people are afraid and they tend not to want to risk things. But frankly, it's a remedy because I keep telling sheriffs and police officers, if you think that you have enough people in your as deputies or state police or local police, when in fact the economy crashes or we have a, a, a catastrophe, you're wrong. And they know it. They know that I'm saying the truth. And so here you have this large group of citizens of the county that could be organized and should be organized uh, to become potentially uh, posse members or uh, part of a lawful militia. And well, let, me, um, let me let me uh, let me let me throw something out here. Uh, well, first a, a question here. I'm going to ask uh, Dan if he knows and can recite the full Second Amendment. You mean the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution? Yes, the full second of the. Yeah. Well, of course right. I can. Do oh, you want me to do it? I want you to do it right now. The full Second Amendment. What is it? Okay. Um, let's see if I get this right. Then do I get a prize? <laughs> a, a well-regulated militia, and and when they say regulated, they mean uh, regular that they're they're carrying standard arms and they have standard training and they know what they're doing. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And there are three commas, and those three commas, boy, there's a lot of comment on those commas. And I want to make a quick comment about uh, Pennsylvania. The sheriff that uh, Bill mentioned. Before before we do that, uh, I'll bring it back to you. But it's something really important. Um, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the free state. Okay? Now, what Sheriff Arpaio is doing that William brought up, he's having a big posse. It's emulating what the founders put together, which was a well-regulated militia, meaning, you know, the electri- uh, the militia leader was elected, you had discipline, you had drills, mandatory requirement, 18 to, I think, 40 or 45. So what happened there was you had your own police force. You had the watch and the ward. But then along came the Dick Act, yeah, that's what it's called, in 1906, <laughs> and, and they turned the local militias into the National Guard. And so Arpeo is bringing this back such that when um, protection is needed from the feds or even if an outside invader comes in, then you have a group of men called militia posse, whatever, it's the way it is right now, we got posse. We The, the community is protected. And in the old days, it had the watch and the ward where if somebody came into town, you know, who the heck are you? You know, you'd have your uh, neighborhood watch system. And so it's a level of protection from the second that Congress has, has meddled with. And I really like what William is doing because that's kind of the next level that the sheriffs need to get to that love the Constitution. Well, let me, let me interject a little history. Sheriffs have been in existence in England since 500 A.D., they were here when Pennsylvania and the colonies were formed, Pennsylvania, in 1682. 
So were constables. Actually, constables came first, but not by much. And in the 1776 Constitution of Pennsylvania, sheriffs and coroners had their own section. Now, in the in the form of government, sheriffs have always had, in this country, power to deputize and create posses. They are the only uh, authority in the county to call a posse. Militias are called by the people, and they actually, uh, the sheriff is oftentimes the lieutenant in the county by choice of the men in the militia. But the governor is the uh, commander and chief, if you will, of the militia, always has been. And if a militia is formed and there's a rank greater than colonel, then it's not a lawful militia because that's a, a historical requirement. The local authority for selecting their officers uh, is retained by the, the militia in the state. I wrote a paper on this subject, and, that, and you're right, the Dick Act was something that occurred that was not the first thing. Actually, Teddy Roosevelt started taking the, the uh, militia and converting them into his troops uh, in the Spanish-American War. And so what you have is this conversion by usurpers like Teddy Roosevelt who thought and said this, that as president, if the Constitution didn't prohibit it, he could do it. 180 degrees from what it's supposed to be. So Teddy was not a good guy. Sounds like Obama. He's the first progressive uh, president. Well, he's operating under a lot of things like the war and emergency power. So big, big uh, leap from Teddy to to where Obama is. But the point I'm making is the the posses are a fundamental part of the sheriff's arsenal, if you will, and he can have, according to history, he can in fact have every able body, it used to be 15 to 45 men in, engaged in his posse, he can call them up. And it's now, I know a lot of women as an example that shoot better than men do, my ex-wife. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's true. Right. The point being <laughs> is every able-bodied citizen can be in the militia and should be. Probably the best authority, the best authority on that is Ed Vieira's book, The Sword and Sovereignty. Uh, 1944 pages it's a long book but the point is militias we need to get them back and I wrote a two page paper on that it's available on the website we've handed it out um, reclaiming our uh, our uh, militias the point is it's an important thing a solution but don't confuse that with a posse a posses have always been part of the support of the sheriff and those oh, are wow. made up of able-bodied men, now men and women, in the county. Yeah, I'd like to mention uh, that, a couple of awesome. local sheriffs. Uh, first of all, the one in Berks County that uh, Bill was referring to is Sheriff Weeknecht. And he is uh, very staunch on Second Amendment, very outspoken. And he really doesn't care what other counties or other executives in the county or what the state says or what the federal government says. He's gone up against them a number of times. Pretty good on that. Um, We're working on him getting even better. And just this past summer in Perry County, uh, Sheriff Nace, N-A-C-E, he was ordered by a, a lowly auditor to provide all of the names and home addresses and pertinent details of every concealed carry holder that he'd issued permits to, to, to for concealed carry. And he refused. Mm. It became a big court case. Not only 
did an unofficial posse, because he didn't swear him in, come out, uh, thousands of people to support him, uh, not all at one time, but just a consistent stream. There were always people wow. there supporting him. But also, almost all of the, the county sheriffs in Pennsylvania, 50 or so of the 67 counties we have, the county sheriffs, they showed up en masse. They supported him. This is a sea change. This is reclaiming their constitutional power, and they are elected by us, and they are responsible to us. I, I don't like executives that um, don't have to answer to anybody, where they're supposed to police themselves. We're supposed to have a constant tension, as Bill was mentioning earlier, between all of the different branches of government. The county government is supposed to be held in check from above, from the side, and from below. And even if all of the government entities become corrupt, there is one final signer in any social compact, whether, whether it's our Constitution or any other agreement that we're going to have that we're going to live. In Mexico, in the um, Chiapas, uh, I guess they call them uh, province, there's a problem. They have corrupt government, and uh, they have corrupt um, narco-terrorist cartels, I mean, really dangerous people. And these are people who show up in what are called technicals. They show up in uh, high souped-up pickup trucks with uh, heavy caliber machine guns mounted on them, and five or ten of these guys will jump out, and they show up with three or four of these, and they have hand grenades, and they terrorize neighborhoods. Well, this one area, this one small city, not the size of uh, Pottsville or Tamaqua, uh, 10,000 people or so, they didn't want to be terrorized anymore. And what they did is they managed to arm themselves. And it's against the law down there, but they bought them, and they have them, and they didn't necessarily have machine guns. But they went around, and they uh, 10,000 men and women, 10,000 mothers and fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers who had had enough of their children being at risk. And they basically caught, executed were, and if they didn't catch them, these people are still on the run. They kicked out all of the criminals. Then they went after the crooked cops, kicked them out. Now the federal government of Mexico had a choice. They could either send, and these are the days where even though there's uh, a lot of intimidation of reporters down there, we, everybody down there has got uh, cell phones and instant uplinks as well. And they had a choice. They could send in federal troops to shoot down Regular citizens, people who were not participating in drug activity, who were not trying to do anything except protect their community. Or, and this would have meant a revolution in that country because the word would get out. And they decided not to. They, they uh, have held in abeyance all their power. The narco-terroristas won't go into Chiapas, and the government won't go into Chiapas, and both of them are trying desperately to influence the good people there and convince them to give up their arms and go back to giving away their power. But when it comes down to it, there, nobody has the power that we have when we're unified, when we stand up against it. And I'll tell you, I like, I, I, I approve of, I'm, I'm a minarchist, I guess it would be. I like a minimum required amount of government because there are things that government should do. We, we are not all strong enough, smart enough, fast enough, uh, sophisticated enough to protect ourselves against thugs, criminals, bad guys. We need government to make sure that those people are caught and prosecuted and punished. 
and to provide national defense and certain other specifically enumerated rights. I'm fine with that. But when it comes down to it, we're all self-governed. I don't obey an officer's law or, or order because I'm scared he's going to shoot me. I obey it because it's right. If he decides I'm, I'm not the typical person, I guess, if he wants to shoot me, if I think he's wrong, if he tells me I'm supposed to uh, um, hit a child, that I'm supposed to steal from someone that I don't know. No, I don't care if you've got a gun. I'm not doing it. And if I'm alone, it's a very dangerous thing, as Bill said. But if everybody in my town, if everybody in my county, if we all absolutely refuse to obey their orders, we don't have to start a new government. We don't have to overthrow the government. All we have to do is get some good people in there to do what they're supposed to be doing and not a damn thing more. Yeah, we have to reclaim the government that we're supposed to have. And I don't think it takes a yes. majority. I, I think 10% of the people in your county, uh, first of all, they control every election. And secondly, uh, in Pennsylvania, as an example, there are three county commissioners. Most counties, some have gone to home rule charter, unfortunately. So you need two county commissioners that are constitutionalists. And if you have a sheriff that will enforce the law and the people to back him up, it doesn't really matter what the judges do. They can sit in a dark, cold courthouse and do nothing because the commissioners control the salaries of everybody else who works in the courthouse. The state controls the salary of the judges. So what is that judge going to do? He's not going to have a staff. He's not going to have the deputy sheriff to protect him. He's going to do nothing. So you need three constitutionalists in your county to control the county and the people to back them up. Damn straight. Uh, and I don't, and I can say I, I advocate uh, organizing um, to learn and focus on the fundamental cause of our problem, and that is governments at all levels do not read, study, understand, and strictly follow the founding documents, the controlling constitutions, and other founding documents. That's the problem. It's also the solution. That's what they have to do. They take an oath to do it, but they don't. And that's what our job is, I think, as a citizen, is to instruct and require everybody in government to do just that. And if they don't, they have three choices. They can change their ways. They can, in fact, um, follow the law. They can resign. Um, or we will put them in jail. Those are the three choices. Very simple, uh, isn't it? They'll get due process. Uh, by a jury, a grand jury, and a trial jury. But the evidence is pretty clear that just about everybody violates their oath of office. So I, I encourage um, uh, us to start doing that. Uh, just a quick story, and then we're going to probably run out of time. The sheriff in Chester County, uh, nice lady, um, and I offered to teach her and her deputies what's an Anderson sheriff. Um, but the bottom line is I said, you know, you need to uh, – start issuing citations and arresting people who are breaking the law, and it doesn't matter who they are. And her answer was, well, I don't have that authority. I said, sure you do. You always have. Uh, well, the prosecutor won't prosecute the case. And I explained, well, look, that prosecutor, first of all, is not the chief law enforcement officer you are, and he has a duty and an oath, and his minimum is to determine whether your charge is valid or not. 
And then if it is, to prosecute it. If he does nothing, he's violating his oath of office, which, by the way, is a felony. So you have the duty to arrest him. Oh, you want me to arrest the, the, the DA? And I said, sure, that's your job. Now, then she said, well, if I did that, the judge wouldn't hear the case. To which I said, come on, you can figure it, Bunny, that's her name. You can figure this out. You have a deputy sheriff in every courtroom. That deputy is you, represents the sheriff's office. And if he or she sees a law being broken by the judge or the prosecutor or, frankly, anybody, it's their duty to correct it if they can, get it corrected, or make arrests. And so that they ought to go up to the judge, as an example, when he sees that the judge is violating the law, the rights of the litigator, litigants, uh, or the jury, and say, Judge, I saw you break the law. I would like for you to correct that. It's your job to do that. You took an oath. So did I. If you choose not to, I will follow my oath and place you under arrest. I don't want to do it, but I will do it. And by the now, way, that's going to be classic. That's Sheriff Carolyn Bunny Welsh of uh, Chester County, Pennsylvania, and she is a very nice person, and she's she's really trying. Most of these people in office, by the way, folks, uh, unless you live in certain areas, some places they're all crooks. They're all real jerks. But most of the people in office uh, at a low level really aren't that bad. They may be going the wrong path, but we can correct them. We can We can bring them back. They're politicians, so you've got to use the carrot and the stick simultaneously because they're not too smart. Otherwise, they wouldn't be going for public office. Um, and and they're, it's like police officers. There's, there's some bad ones, okay? And, and the top echelon, um, almost all of them suck. They're, they're, they're politicians, and they'll do whatever it takes, and they're interested in self-aggrandizement. But the rank-and-file police officer is a pretty decent fella or lady, um, most of them just need to be educated, and they need to know that they have support. It's a carrot and a stick. You you want to offer people, whoever they are, consequences. Here's what we expect you to do. It's honorable. It's decent. It's proper. It's not hard to do. If you do it, we'll back you up. And really, you have to back them up. You can't just say it. You have to show up. You have to sign petitions. You have to make donations. You have to help them. And... If you don't do it, we're going to make your life miserable. We're going to primary you. We're going to cost you money. We're going to make you uncomfortable. We're going to badmouth you in the press. We're going to start whispering campaigns. We're going to show up everywhere you are with signs. We're going to make you wish that you never, ever stepped out of your door that morning, every single morning you step out of your door. And they've got to understand that we mean it. And those who can't handle it will, will as 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 Bill said, they'll choose the easy path and they'll resign because most of them, if they really wanted to work hard, wouldn't be in politics in the first place. And, and well, speaking of uh, primarying them, as our uh, our guest next week uh, did with uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, we'll be uh, playing that audio uh, first. And, and you're right. Uh, well, unfortunately, we're you know, running out of time because I did tell uh, their campaign uh, manager that I, I would be playing that audio tonight uh kind of a precursor of having Mr. Bevan on uh, for next week. Uh, but first of all, I did want to touch on this since, you know, kind of changing gears a little bit. Uh, but be that as it may, of course, this, this is an interest of mine. If you could tell us a little bit about uh, your involvement and perhaps a little bit about the group, uh, just, you know, for a little bit on the Alliance of Responsible Eco Farming. 
or care? Uh, care. Uh, that's an interesting story, and it uh, really actually started in uh, in a, uh, a meeting in the Lancaster Farm Center where they were having a conference. Um, and I was in the uh, at the break was in the bathroom, and I got to talking with an Amishman next to me, and they were trying to figure out how they could uh, sell more of their the food that they created. And we started talking, and then there was five, and then six, and then we moved outside in the hall. And by the end of the break, there was about twenty of us. And out of that grew uh, a group. They had already started organizing, and I said, you know, it's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when the government's going to come in and try to shut you down. So you need to get organized and learn and so forth. And that's what uh, sort of started that group. And they are very successful. Um, uh, the, uh, they've grown. I think they have somewhere around, um, uh, I believe it's 6,000, 6,500 members now. Uh, and uh, there's not that many farmers, less than 40 farmers, but, uh, those 6,000-plus people buy food from them, and they produce uh, a wide range of food, which is against the law or against the rules that they've made up for the state has, but they sell it anyway. But it's a private organization that's structured by farmers and consumers and, in fact, frankly, has uh, been very successful. And they, they wrote bylaws, and they understand the name of the game, and they are prepared, and they actually have gotten uh, national support uh, there's uh, an organization that uh, has an attorney that uh, started helping them, the Farmer to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. And so there's there's an effort going across the country for the people to reclaim our rights to produce the food that we want and to consume the food we want. And frankly, the best government of that is the consumer. If a farmer doesn't produce a good product, don't buy it. And if you get in trouble, there's the uh, community and there's the church. And frankly, the last result is go to the court, but that's always there uh, as a remedy. But the best protection for good food, as an example, frankly, for good government, is the people to say, we will support that or not. And in the farming, in this community, uh, they have a loyal following because they produce good food and they self-regulate. They uh, do the checks necessary for the farmers. Um, it's a it's a worthwhile thing to do, but it's primarily here in Pennsylvania. Uh, there's some in Ohio as well and other states, But and I hope it grows. But it's a state-by-state state or county-by-county county, uh, organization, again, of uh, farmers organizing with consumers to produce healthy, nutrient-rich food, um, contrary to what the government says. And, in fact, in studying this, if you read the permit that the state requires the farmer to get, it could never, never apply to a private farmer. In fact, the definition of person is masculine or feminine, not male or female, masculine or feminine. And in fact, Joe's auto shop in the law is a masculine person. Sally's hair salon is a feminine person, and therefore it's clear that that permit only applies to corporate entities, fictitious entities, not humans. Humans are the only ones that have protected rights. And uh, so the attorneys have been very successful. The first case was taken 
um, by a farmer uh, in Lancaster County. I was helping him. Uh, he and his fellow farmer up the road were being prosecuted by the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture. And uh, Leroy had been accused of selling cottage cheese, which he didn't make, so he got out of that. Levi, on the other hand, was selling raw milk, didn't have a permit, and uh, he went to the local court. He ultimately, after a long period of time, was found guilty. Damn terrorist. um, Well, yeah, (laughs) and so the point being is... uh, I said, you know, he we worked through that, and then he appealed it to the common police court. At that point, I said, you've got to have an attorney. You're just not able to do it yourself, and I can't help you in that court. So just the same time, the consumer to farm, farmer to consumer legal defense fund was formed, and we went down and listened to what the attorneys had to say, and I said to Levi, I said, look, if you like what you hear, and uh, we talk about it, maybe they'll take your case. They took his case. That was in 2006. Um, eventually, the attorney for the Farmer to Consumer Legal Defense Fund got in touch with the attorney for the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture, and the attorney for the PDA said, time, we've decided not to proceed. We'll let you know when we do. They haven't proceeded on that case yet, and they won't. Nine years. They, nine, that was 2006. They can't do it. And, and, the statute of limitations is not run. What I'm saying is no, it, when people stand together. Are they organic and, farmers? Yeah, dairy farmers. Right. No, I said or, they are they organic farmers? Uh, they use organic procedures, but they are they are natural uh, farmers and they, uh, you know, natural food, and they don't use pesticides and herbicides and that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, okay. uh, chlorine, chlorine for antiseptics and that kind of thing. Uh, the okay. products are absolutely great. The point is, those farmers, to answer your question about what CARE is about, have stood together, have organized, have written bylaws, and they know what to do and how to say. And, in fact, one story uh, is that when the government was coming to bother a farmer, the farmer barred the phone of the inspector, called the attorney in Ohio, put him on the phone, on the inspector's phone, they had a discussion. The inspector went away. That's that's sort of how it works. Now it's not always successful because people don't do the right thing all the time, and these people in government are very sneaky and tricky, and they trick you into self-incrimination. But nevertheless, CARE has been very successful in holding off uh, the invasion of the state, intruding in their production of natural, nutrient-rich dairy foods and other others as well, other food as well. I have a number of friends who are farmers who live over in the next valley, Lewistown Valley, and uh, uh, one of them was my, my kid's first teacher, um, awesome person. Uh, family's been farming there forever. And I asked her, I said, why don't you, uh, you know, she's a little farm stand. We buy from her anything that she grows. We know she won't sell it unless it's something she put on her own table for her own family, and they're just a wonderful people. And uh, And there's some Mennonites over there as well. But in any case... I said, why don't you go organic? And she educated me. She says, if we go organic, all that means is that we're getting a certification from the government. And what it also means is that they have the right to specify and micromanage every single thing we do, including a lot of practices and techniques that we don't think are healthy for the farm that we've had for generations and that we want to have stay in the family and be productive for generations more. 
they can come on our property if we have that anytime they want. They can shut us down for anything that they want. They they can measure stuff, and if it's not within a millimeter of what the specification is or a degree or whatever it is, that they can just they can fine us and put us out of business. She says, so we're growing, and I know she doesn't use – they use manure. They use uh, – you know, um, what's it where the uh, – leave fields fallow and plant things like alfalfa. They're very smart and they're very careful and they're very conservative with the land. They want it to be enriched and better every single year. And and the vegetables and fruits that they produce are just tremendous, awesome, healthy, tasty, really good stuff. Can't say enough about it. And she's growing that organic, healthy stuff and refuses to go – Get, just like getting a driver's license, refuses to get the government sanctioned because all it does is right. give them jurisdiction to mess with her. Makes sense. Now, at, th- at this point, uh, we'll have to take some uh, final comments where I can make sure that I uh, get that uh, interview out uh, with uh, Matt, or, you know, Matt Bevan and the previous time we've had him on. So let's go ahead and uh, bring it to you, Dan, since you were uh, talking, and we'll bring it over to you, Kelly. And then, of course, uh, we leave the final words to our guest, and of course, uh, everyone is welcome to uh, here on the call also uh, to listen to that interview as well. Kind of a, give us some, a flavor, a uh, good flavor uh, of, of what we have in store for next week. So go ahead, uh, Dan, and then we'll bring it over to you, Kelly. Well, I've said enough, and I don't want to violate Kelly's uh, 11th commandment, so I'll pass it on to Kelly, <laughs> knowing that he has that much respect for Bill that he won't violate it either. Go ahead, Kelly. Oh, it's the it's eighth deadly sin, which is hard. Oh, deadly sin. Yeah. So right. this but is anyway, why you're um, a scholar and I'm just a blowhard. <laughs> well, you got the Second <laughs> Amendment right. That's pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, basically, I really like uh, having William here, and I hope you can join us another day. Um, yes. I, I love yes, tidbits of history and other things, and uh, and now it's up to me. You're certainly welcome to come back. Well, I appreciate that, and I look forward to it. I, I guess the next time we'll talk about what a license is and what it isn't. And, Dan, you're absolutely right. When people apply for a license and get it, they give the state jurisdiction over which they didn't have and couldn't have over people because we, the people, have the ultimate power. We're the sovereigns. And, in fact, uh, they don't have any authority in most of the things they do, and we under licenses and permits. So we'll lose that, leave that for another day. I certainly appreciate you having me, and I uh, look forward to doing it again. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, William. We appreciate uh, you coming onto the show, and definitely, uh, and that is a big part of how grassroots activism is on the forefront of reviving America. And part of that forefront is having grassroots candidates uh, such as Matt Bevan. So what I'm going to go yeah. ahead now is uh, play the part of the show where we had uh, him on uh, from the beginning of the, that show 11 months ago. So sit back, folks, enjoy. And then, of course, uh, if you're listening to the show and you'd like to ask uh, Matt Bevan or hear Matt Bevan live, join us next week on April 1st uh, when we'll have uh, Matt Bevan on live uh, to the show. So here we go. Love Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on This is the perfect day to die 
wipe the blood out of our eyes In this life there's no surrender And there's nothing left for us to do Find the strength to see this through Be broken With our final breath We'll fight to the death We are soldiers We are soldiers Hello folks, thank you once again for coming to Bard's Logic Political Talk Part of the Growing Conservative Conversation And also part of the Patriot Journalist Network And you can find us at the Patriot Journalist Network by going to www.patriotjournalist.com. Also visit us at the Bard's Logic Political Talk website by going to www.bardslogicpoliticaltalk.com. Tonight we have a special guest on, and that is the conservative challenger to Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, Matt Bevan, and we'll be interviewing him tonight. And I believe we have him on, so we'll later on read the from here or his website, uh, his bio, uh, go ahead. But without any further ado, I want to bring him on. So thank you, Mr. Bevan, for coming to the show. How are you? Here we go. Let me try that. Can you guys hear me okay? I can hear you great. Thank you. Terrific. Great. Thank you very much uh, for coming to the show. How are you today? Sounds like we have some. Oh, the the line dropped, uh, but we'll have him in shortly, I'm sure. And maybe he's just going to retest uh, the lines. So let, let me wait to see if uh, it calls back in. So while we're at, I'll uh, read a little bit of, of course, uh, join me, uh, the host tonight, talking with our guest, as well as conservative activist Cindy Todd, as well as James Neighbors and Kelly Mordecai, along with. Dan Gray, so we'll be hearing from us this evening. And, of course, as I said earlier, oh, there we go. Let's try him back in. Is that better for you? It, I hope so. It seems uh, it seems that I've got a decent connection with you, but I'm not sure I lost you there for a moment. Sounds good. Yes, it looks like uh, we got disconnected for a few moments, and then we're back. Well, thank you for having me on tonight. I truly appreciate it. Well, and I appreciate you coming on. I was looking at your schedule today, and you had definitely had a, a busy day. So before we go to the other questions, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing today. Today I'm in, in northern Kentucky, and uh, it's, it has been a busy day, but it's been outstanding. I mean, started out with a, uh, a breakfast with a bunch of business folks and uh, just discussing this campaign, and uh, and then moving uh, from there on to meet with some various uh uh, other establishments, some uh, businesses, some hardware stores, some kind of local gathering places, a couple of meet and greets, uh, uh, wound up with a meet and greet uh, this evening, and then uh, spent some time with a reporter who's a national reporter following this campaign. So just another day in the life, but very good. It's been just an outstanding day. It really has. Awesome. And uh, I'll begin here with, with the question that I ask all the candidates that they come on. Uh, so what brought you into the race, and what motivates you to moving forward? 
I mean, more than anything, the fact that as a nation we have a, a, a crippling level of debt that if we don't address it is going to render every other thing that any of us care about to be a, a moot point. Uh, I'm, I'm a you know a husband. I'm a father of nine children. I'm a small business owner. I've got a lot of people that are depending on me, depending on uh, my ability to continue to create jobs for them in the case of the companies and to provide uh, food and shelter for them in the case of my children. I look at where we're going as a nation, and I, and I wonder what's happening to the American dream. And I'm a military veteran. I'm a guy who grew up in a pretty simple way. But more than anything, I realize if we don't start to elect men and women who understand how the wealth of this nation is created, then, we are, then, then nothing is going to be resolved in Washington, D.C. on the fiscal front. Let's start talking about uh, some issues um, and discuss your stance on issues such as spending, including uh, comparisons with yourself and, of course, Mr. McConnell on raising the debt limit and bailouts. Uh, what is your stance on those two issues, and how do you differ from Mr. McConnell, and what would you do differently? Yeah, I mean, now let's address them in in, uh, in reverse order. With respect to the bailouts, uh, I've been adamantly opposed always to the idea of using federal tax dollars uh, to bail out irresponsible companies. I mean, taking money from the American taxpayer and using it to bail out financially irresponsible companies is a bad idea. It is not the role of government to pick winners and losers. So I'm very much opposed to that. Mitch McConnell, on the other hand, a strong supporter of all the above, voted against the will of the people of Kentucky and most of America to bail out the Wall Street banks and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and then then came out and told us that this was the finest hour in Senate history, which was a bit of a push, I think. So big difference between <laughs> he and I on that front. Uh, the other, as it relates to the debt ceiling, I, we cannot borrow our way out of debt, and we cannot print our way out of debt. And I don't think that has resonated uh, with Mitch McConnell. He has voted for 14 debt ceiling increases in a row, and on this latest one, where I was strongly opposed to giving a clean, quote-unquote, you know, clean debt ceiling bill to the president, Mitch McConnell ended up breaking the back of the conservatives like Ted Cruz and like Mike Lee and others who said we've got to hold ourselves to financial account. He ended up casting the deciding vote to vote for cloture to undermine their effort to do something to cut somewhere, to do something in a fiscally responsible nature, uh, I would have done the exact, I would have been with those 17 that did not vote uh, for this. I just, I think this is the kind of thing that has been destroying our country, is that we have career politicians in both party parties who end up colluding with one another and end up being versions of the exact same thing. And this fiscal irresponsibility by Mitch McConnell not only on this latest debt ceiling increase, but on the budgeting, the continuing resolution, his votes to fund Obamacare, all of this, big differences between me and I on a fiscal front. Yeah, I heard a commercial today, actually, you know, as I was coming home, and it said, uh, it was a Mitch McConnell commercial, saying that you were Obama's, you know, best friend, <laughs> and that huh. uh, they actually dubbed you Bailout bail Bevan, uh, which which surprised me, especially after reading your stances on bailouts. Uh, would you like to answer an ad such as that? Well, yeah. I mean, when you have twelve, he has spent twelve million dollars in in this in this race so far, 
lying about me. And you notice everything he attacks me for is something that he's weak on. He's weak on bailouts, so he will call me a bailout guy. He's weak on amnesty, so he'll try to say that I'm for amnesty. In, you do understand, of course, that in the world of politics, there is no slander or libel that applies. So you can say anything you want about somebody. And if you have millions of dollars to do it, you can do so. To say I'm a friend of Obama, that one is <laughs> yeah, even the most <laughs> remarkable of them all. I've never met the man, and I can assure you there's nothing I stand for that he would uh, that he would be a fan of at all on the uh, ideological front. So, again, it's because Mitch McConnell has been, McCon- has been Obama's best buddy. I mean, seriously, think about this. What do they call an unlimited spending ability by the president? What is that called in, on Capitol Hill? It's called the McConnell rule. Mitch McConnell is the one who wanted to give a blank check to Obama. Obama loves that. You know, who was it that wanted to fund Obamacare and who could have stopped it? Mitch McConnell, but who voted for that funding, for closure to allow that to move forward? Mitch McConnell. You think Obama doesn't love that? Who loves the idea of granting amnesty to people that are here illegally? Barack Obama, who has voted repeatedly over 30 years to do exactly that, Mitch McConnell. So the two of them, the two of them are best buds on just about everything that is critical, uh, where McConnell should be on the opposite side of the equation. And so that's why he attacks me for it, because it's where he's weak. Well, it sounds like it's kind of like the, the, the way they name Bill, kind of the opposite of what they actually do, like the Affordable Health Care Act. And so it exactly. sounds like there might be the same thing going on here. Um, but or I do want to get this out or the National Defense Authorization Act or any, you know, pick one. You're absolutely right. There you go. There you go. We we, we talk uh, a, a bunch on those. But I want to get to the next. Some are saying, and I want to definitely talk about this because I know it's important to the audience, uh, but I hear some saying we ought to put social issues on the back burner until we fix our liberty and big government problems, uh, such as like but a federal judge recently here in Ohio uh called to recognize the saying the state needs to recognize out of state gay marriage. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, and what are your general thoughts on the gay marriage issue and the right to life issue? Well, I mean, again, I'll take them in reverse order. On the right to life issue, I'm very staunchly pro-life and have been. I, I, my, my reasons uh, have far more to do with uh, medical reality than anything else. I don't, it's hard for me to find any justification in fact, it's impossible for me to find any justification for killing a human being for the convenience of another human being. I just I don't find that to be a, uh, a an argument that holds water. And so I'm staunchly pro-life as it relates to the gay marriage issue. I mean, I think this is it's not the government's role to define or redefine marriage. I don't believe government defined marriage as that between a man and a woman, which has always been the traditional uh, view of marriage. I happen to be a proponent of that traditional view. Uh, I'm married and have been for 18 years. It's working great, and uh, I think I'm going to stick with it. That said, uh, there are differences of opinion on this subject. And the idea, though, that a single judge can come along and set aside the will of the people, as happened here in Kentucky, where a single unelected judge ended up coming and setting aside a ruling that 74% of Kentuckians had voted on, which was to define marriage as that between a man and a woman. And then that was set aside by a judge. I don't think that's the role for one individual to override the, the, um, the, the will of the people. That said, I don't think it's a business, a, a role that government should be sticking its nose into one way or the other. 
And to the extent that there needs to be codification and definition for tax reasons and others, let that be handled at the state level. And one thing the government, of course, we're all aware of is sticking their nose in is health care, and specifically Obamacare, uh, which lays heavily on the minds of many Americans. Uh, tell us how McConnell is handling Obamacare as a senator, and what would you do differently and why? Well, it's funny. For, for many months, he said that he wanted to yank it out root and branch. That was his big thing. He ran all these ads and said that, but he no longer says that. He now wants to fix it and patch it. I disagree. I think it should be repealed in its entirety. I'm so These people are constantly telling us it's the law of the land. Well, it's been so carved up, sliced up, that it no longer even closely approximate, approximates what it was when it was first passed. That said, it really, more than anything, is the flaw of the land. It's just so broken, so flawed, I don't think there's any capacity to fix or patch it, and I'm not for that. I think it should be repealed in its entirety. That's a big difference between... Mitch McConnell and, I'm, and myself. He also voted, after saying he was opposed to it, voted to fund it and allowed this to become the quote-unquote law of the land. I would not have done that. I would have stood with Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Mike Lee, and all the other true conservatives in the Senate who said we're not going to vote for the funding of this. Mitch McConnell says one thing in Kentucky and does something entirely different in Washington, D.C., and he's done it for years. Then moving on, I'm going through these uh, the questions real quickly because I do have folks on the line who would uh, definitely really enjoy speaking with you and may have some questions themselves. But I'd like to spend a little bit of time on education and energy. And last week we had a guest on to talk with us about Common Core. And the week before that we had a gentleman running for governor for the Green Party in Pennsylvania. But what are your views on Common Core? What would you do? Would you do anything to get rid of it? And what energy, um, what are your thoughts on energy in America, excuse me, moving forward with more renewable energy resources? Well, you're just mixing all these things together on me, aren't you? As it relates <laughs> to uh, to Common Core, I'm adamantly opposed to it. I think it's just flawed from any number of standpoints. Educationally, I think it's weak. I don't like the law. I mean, anybody who doesn't know anything about it should spend a little time looking at some of the lesson plans, and they would give anybody pause, even those who think this might be a good thing. So educationally, it's a joke. I don't. The idea that it's three times four can equal 11, as long as you can justify the reasoning for it and feel good about your answer, uh, that's insane to me. I don't want somebody who comes up with three times four equals 11 designing a bridge that I'm going to drive across or an elevator that I'm going to get into or an airplane that I'm going to take off or land in. Facts are facts. Numbers are numbers. And and on any number of fronts, removing hard sciences and replacing them with these pseudoscience uh, curriculum, and more critically, just turning our children uh, into spies, basically, on their own, on their own selves and, that, and on their families and, and homes. It is such an intrusion into the privacy of, of students and of their families. It's an encroachment on our Fourth Amendment rights. And I just, I'm opposed to Common Core at many, many levels. I really am. With respect to energy policy, what was the question specifically? Well, specifically, it's just what are your views um, on alternative energy and what are your thoughts of America moving forward on renewable energy resources? If it can cash flow itself, if it can sustain itself without subsidies from the American taxpayers, I say go for it. And if it can't, I say 
Go for it with your own money, not taxpayer money. And if you want to lose that money because it's unsustainable, then that's your prerogative. But to use taxpayer money to subsidize something that has no ability to justify its own existence through supply and demand, I think that's a big mistake. We have the ability to be energy independent in North America and in the United States even specifically with fracking, with the incredible coal resources, with the ability to uh, tap into massive oil reserves as well on our own land. We have incredible opportunities to be independent of all outside energy sources. And if we can augment that and complement that with certain renewable resources that actually justify their own existence, terrific. Otherwise, I say let's stick to what actually doesn't need subsidization from the American taxpayer. Okay, got it. Now, the people who listen to the show regularly know that, you know, I am a conservative, but I do consider myself an environmentalist as well. Uh, a green conservative is Newt Gingrich uh, coined the phrase in green conservatism. Uh, so that's, you know, what I adhere to, so it's definitely interested in, in hearing what your thoughts are on that. But I want to talk uh, more about, of course, your campaign. And I've read uh, that you've raised about $1.12 million. And <clears throat> So well, that was just said, in the last. That was just in the last, in the last quarter. quarter, right? Yeah. In the last qu- quarter, and, and some are saying that this will actually cause McConnell, as I heard today on the radio, uh, to spend more dollars. Now, what they say is would be valuable to spend against the Democrats' opponent. Uh, how is your campaign going for one? And then, how would you answer the critics when they say that you running and you causing him to spend so much money could hurt the Republicans in losing in the general election? <laughs> On, on the latter, he's the one that has no chance of winning a general election. And that's not just my opinion. All the polling shows that. He is neck and neck or losing to Grimes, who's remarkably unqualified, and yet he's neck and neck or losing to her in every one of the last 10 to 12 polls that have been done. He has no chance of winning the general election. And so if indeed he's worried about making sure we don't lose this seat, he should bow out now. So that's a joke. And if the man spent half as much time fighting against liberal policies in Washington as he spends fighting against conservatives in his own party, we wouldn't have the need to run against him. But the idea that he's forced to spend money to get reelected, well, welcome to the world of politics, Senator McConnell. (laughs) I mean, for 30 years, the man has not had anybody so much as put an ad up on air against him in 30 years on the Republican side. So welcome to the world of of, of competitive primaries. This is exactly what this Amer- what America needs more of. It's cathartic. It's Great. refreshing. It's invigorating for the political process to engage in active and aggressive discussions of issues. It's what he's afraid of. He can't defend his record. He's too cowardly to debate on his record. He's too cowardly to appear in public and discuss it with anybody in a public forum too arrogant to think that he needs to present himself to the people of Kentucky, and it's a shame because it's insulting. And so this idea that this is somehow hurting him, he's hurt himself. I didn't make him the least popular senator in America among his own constituents. He has a 32% approval rating among his own constituents. He did that quite handily on his own. So the idea that somehow me running against him is hurting him, he's hurt himself. I'm giving people an actual alternative, which is going to be critical if we truly want to keep this seat. And for those who would like to keep this seat, they can go to my website, check it out. It's mattbevin.com, M-A-T-T-B-E-V-I-N.com. 
check it out. See where I stand on these issues and all the others. And for those that are in Kentucky or who have friends in Kentucky, spread the word. Yeah, definitely. And that's one of the things I wanted to make sure we got out today was uh, the link to your website. And also, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you were recently at a rally, and we'll talk about it in Kentucky, in Louisville, that was sponsored by FreedomWorks and had support from, uh, I heard about a, a thousand or more, you know, over a thousand folks there, including Glenn Beck. And I heard uh, McConnell also refused to have a debate with you. So I'll uh, hear more about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's funny. I mean, it's probably McConnell who said it was a thousand. There was three thousand five hundred seats, and I didn't see any of them that were empty. So there was probably about thirty-five hundred people that were there physically, and then another fourteen thousand who who streamed it online. Uh, and it was a tremendous uh, group of folks. I mean, the energy, the passion, the excitement—it was awesome. It really was. And so uh, it was very gracious of Glenn Beck and so many other terrific conservatives from around the country to gather together uh, in support of this effort for Freedom Works to have, have put this forward. Um, all of this, I mean, these are the kind of things that um, are critical gaining momentum uh, for us going forward. And so I was grateful for that. The campaign is going outstanding. We have got tremendous grassroots support. Where we have difficulty is just the top down, because even for the dollars we raise, I don't think there's another Senate candidate in America running for U.S. Senate, not running against, you know, and no one else who's running against an incumbent has raised more money than we have. But it's quickly dismissed and poo-pooed. You know, people are, oh, you've only raised $2.5 million and he's got $20 million. Well, he's been raising money since the last time mm-hmm. he got elected, six years ago. So we're never going to compete on that. We've got the energy. He has a machine, too, behind him. Mm-hmm. Tell me that again. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. No, I mean, I'm sure he has the establishment machine behind him as well. He does. I mean, there's there's no question. I mean, he he has all of the power of the party, but this is the problem. Honestly, the, those that think this is somehow, back to your earlier question, somehow a conflict within the Republican Party are not seeing what's going on. This is not just a battle for the heart and soul of the Republican Party. This, and I challenge your listeners to understand this because it's important in this race and in other races like this, and it's important across the entire political landscape. And that is, this is a race that's a battle for the heart and soul of the entire political process. Because what's at stake in this race is whether we the people are still in charge, whether this is still a government of and by and for the people, or whether it's going to be allowed to be hijacked and it's going to be of and by and for a few. The few, the establishment, the party would have us believe it's the latter. I'm telling you, it is still our government. It is still we the people. And I would be grateful for the support of any of your listeners that could come alongside social media, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, push our stuff out there, visit mattbevin.com. Find ways to support us in any way you can because this affects all of America. It really does. And certainly, if you can topple, you know, if you could topple McConnell, I think they'll um, just create ways throughout the country to people to support more grassroots, uh, we the people candidates, uh, more conservative candidates uh, throughout the nation. Absolutely, yeah, it'll empower people. It'll invigorate people to the reality of what the ballot box can do, and the ballot box is a powerful, powerful privilege that we have as American citizens. There have been one and a half million of our fellow citizens who have given their lives in uniform for us to be able to have the privilege of the ballot box. And I challenge your listeners, please, don't just listen 
Don't just talk. Be engaged. Be active. And don't just turn yourselves out. Turn out one, three, five, ten, fifty, a hundred other people. Have a sense of urgency and a sense of purpose because this is our government. And before I turn it over to uh, a brief word from our sponsor and then uh, to the panelists and guests, you know, audience, uh, I'd like to get um, some about recent events over in Ukraine. Tell us a little bit about uh, what your thoughts are on the situation developing uh, with Russia. And what would you recommend Obama to do? Well, I mean, for starters, I, I, I mean, we've gotten ourselves into a pickle where Russia knows they can do with impunity anything they want because our foreign policy has been a joke. Uh, from the beginning of this administration, it really has. It's been spineless, it's been apologetic, and it has given the impression that we're not serious about anything, and I'm afraid that's become the reality. So with respect to Putin, I think it's a tremendous overreach, to say the very least. That's an understatement. For him to just take Crimea so that he has Gazprom's conduit into Europe, purely economic move, he's doing it with Russia's best interest at heart, but but in absolute violation of the rule of law and the sovereignty of another nation. I think it's intolerable. I also believe, as a former military officer, I'm, I have pretty strong opinions about the way we do and don't use our military. We have absolutely no business being militarily involved in this business. We don't. And so, at the same time, though, for us to turn the other way and pretend it's not happening is the wrong message. We have the ability to use an extraordinary amount of diplomatic and financial muscle. We have far less diplomatic muscle than we ever did, but we have the ability to use muscle that does still exist to make it clear that if you're going to act like a rogue nation, you're going to be treated like a rogue nation. And we should seize every dollar of every account belonging to Putin and all of his cronies that are parked in our banks and in the banks of our allies. We should remove him not only temporarily as a member of the G8, but we should actively work to ensure that, that Russia is removed as a member of the WTO and every other entity that gives them any semblance of legitimacy on the world stage. And if you want to act like a thug autocrat, we're going to treat you like one. We've got to be serious because he's serious. He's not goofing mm -hmm. around, and he's assuming that we are. And we, our president needs to grow a spine in, for the last few years. I don't think he cares to, though. I don't think this bothers him a lick. And this is definitely what happens, at least in my opinion, when America appears or America is weakened. And I certainly that, believe that that's something that Obama has done. And so as we do have, definitely have some folks on here who would like to speak with you. But first, uh, folks, May 11th is Mother's Day. So for all you men listening to the show, uh, visit our sponsor for some great ideas for your special woman on Mother's Day. And so just give us a minute for a sponsor. Thank you. Hi, I'm Julie Stevenson, an independent representative with Sopata Designs. Sopata is a direct selling company which offers fine sterling silver and semi-precious gemstone jewelry. If you like sterling silver jewelry, you can place an order with me. If you love sterling silver jewelry, book a home show and get the pieces you love for free. Sopata hostesses earn an average of $300 in free jewelry and three half-priced items. If you love our jewelry, do what I did and become a Sopata rep and earn 30% commission as well as free jewelry monthly. It's so simple, the style of our home parties is always an open house with no formal presentation. You can access my website on Bard's Logic, then call me to start living the life you deserve. 513-378-378. 8876. I can't wait to hear from you.
Okay, folks, so we'll be putting uh, the link to that shortly uh, in the chat. So, guys, don't forget to, to visit the sponsor page on bardslogicpoliticaltalk.com and get that special gift uh, for Mother's Day. So we're back to the show, and I want to bring in Will at this time. He's been on uh, the longest, and then I'll bring in uh, some of the panelists. Uh, so, Will, thank you very much uh, for coming to the show, and uh, say hi to our guest tonight, uh, Matt Bevan. Hey, Matt Bevan, it's Will Stoff. I've been following you on Twitter since you announced your campaign a long time yes, ago. Sir. You have been hey, a, thank a, a you so tweeting machine. Thank you. <laughs> no problem, man. You know, just watching your campaign, I don't think there's another campaign in the country that's taken on an incumbent that has this much enthusiasm, that has all the backing of every single possible conservative group that you could possibly think of in Kentucky and, and throughout the nation. And I think the biggest challenge, this is just kind of my own perception here, and maybe you can weigh in on this, is turning off the noise, whether that noise is coming from Mitch McConnell, whether it's coming from Allison Grimes, or if, or I even hate to say it, coming from you know certain, I won't m mention any names, but certain conservative media heads that do support you but are wringing their hands because we're in the final hour here and they're worried about a bunch of stuff they have no idea with what's going on as far as what's going on on the ground. And I guess the biggest challenge, and maybe you can address this, is, is turning off off the noise and uh, and, and just uh, make winning this darn thing. You know, it's a good point, and I think the key is people have got to stay focused on what the actual purpose is, and the purpose is to win this primary on May 20th. And the static that often accompanies these things is enough to test those of uh, of, of uh, weaker will. It's interesting, you know. Uh, Thomas Paine once said, "These are the times that try men's souls." And they then went on to say that, that the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will shrink, you know, from in, in moments of crisis. And, what, and you're absolutely right. I don't, you know, I hope there are not too many sunshine patriots that will fall back now because these are the times that try our souls, but never has there been greater opportunity to do something great for the American political process, like reinvigorating a sense of confidence among we the people. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and the thing is, Matt, if, if let's just say, and I hope this isn't the case, I don't think it's going to be the case, but if you don't win this thing, you know, John Boehner and Mitch McConnell are going to pass amnesty, and folks better wake up to mm -hmm. that instead of uh, choosing the lesser of two evils. It's time to wake up. Well, he'll have to do it before November because I'm telling you, Mitch McConnell has no chance of getting reelected in the general election. He really doesn't, and that's unfortunate. And then we'll just have one more rubber stamp vote for for uh, Harry Reid and Chuck Schumer and company, and they're huge proponents of amnesty as well. So, I mean, the sad thing is we have got to wake up. You're right. And if people who care about this, listeners in Kentucky, May 20th, you can go to the ballot box, bring people with you, turn out. And go to mattbevan.com to learn more. Spread the word, because that's how these races are won. You're absolutely right, Will. Hey, thank you so much, Matt, and I'll continue tweeting out and uh, supporting you, man, whatever I can do here in South Georgia. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And, and Will, what we do here uh, on the show is, you know, you're welcome to stay on, and we'll have a – oh, no, Will has dropped the call. If, Will, if you're still listening out there, one thing we do a little differently than you may be – used to on other talk shows is we once someone calls in we keep their mic open so they can join our roundtable discussion just in case they'd like to chime in uh, at other parts of the show 
So if you're welcome to call back at 347-945-7428, and anyone else you'd like uh, to chime in tonight, give us a call here at 347-945-7428. And right now I'll be bringing in Dan Gray, which is one of our contributors here uh, to Bard's Logic. So thank you very much, Dan, for calling into the show. How are you? Um, great. And you know what? <laughs> Listening to Mr. Bevan, sir, and I mean the word sir, I have the greatest respect for what you're saying because it's what we've all been saying and you're expressing yourself so excellently. Uh, your understanding of the issues is as well, as good as, boy, I can't even speak, and usually I'm fairly articulate. You're very articulate, especially in a plain, clear, logical, and forceful manner. The purpose and urgency that you're expressing, to use your own words, is something that I'm running across everywhere I run which is Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, uh, West Virginia, uh, New York. I'm, I'm a Pennsylvania guy, and I haven't made it as far as Kentucky, but here in Pennsylvania, the vast flyover space between the couple of major cities that we have, Philly and Pittsburgh, is uh, lovingly referred to as Pennsylvania. The, the only thing you don't have for Kentucky, and I'm kind of surprised you're doing so well there, is you don't have a southern accent. And and but that's okay. It's refreshing that you're not accept, adopting a fake accent for the audience, like uh, our certain uh, occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania. You know, it's interesting though. There's a Kentucky. We're an interesting state in that we have an amazing array of accents or lack thereof, and we're we're a state that is sort of right at the cusp. I mean, my office downtown Louisville. I look out the windows and I look across the river. And, and all I see is Indiana, and no one ever confuses that with the South. So it's we're right at the crossroads of the South and the Midwest, and we have wonderful blends of the two. But uh, you're very gracious in your comments, and I appreciate that. Well, it's because, like most of us, completely fed up. I'm frustrated. I've been saying this stuff for years, and this year, just recently, people have started to, as uh, Will Stoff said, to wake up. They really are. Everywhere they turn... I, I, there, there's people coming out of the woodwork who are saying, what can I do? They're not just saying, boy, oh, boy, this is a mess. They're saying, what can I do? And what we can do is get behind candidates, issues, and specific goals. And a specific goal is to elect people to Congress, to the Senate, to the presidency, to your local offices. And, and let's not forget, folks out there, that um, people like Mr. Bevan are rare. It's rare to get somebody who's ready to go on a national stage. Most of us need to start with school boards and uh, local races where you can build some uh, credibility and you can learn how things work, and so people can vet you. And uh, I'm just so pleased to hear you. I, I, I usually get um, guests who I have some agreement with and some disagreement with, and we get into debates not only have I heard everything you've said, but I've been looking on your website now for some time, and I have yet to find anything that I'm not in 100% sync with. You really are resonating not with me personally alone, but with what I hear from, I guess, since uh, last September, uh, I must have met, and I, I'm, I admit I'm one of those people who counts things, somewhere around uh, 17, 18,000 different patriots, and every one of them is saying the same thing you're saying, but not quite as clearly. And it's a pleasure to hear. 
Well, thank you. You know what? I tell you what. I speak, as you said, for a whole lot of folks, and I and I, I I'm grateful for. You know, we all end up as products of 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 how we were raised and of the various uh, variables that that make up our lives, and it becomes a function of who among us will step forward. Winston Churchill once noted that history turns on moments like this. That that the the greatest moments, as you look back through the lens of history were not necessarily so obvious at the time. And he said, shame on the man who finds himself at such a juncture, who is either unprepared or unwilling to take up the task. And I'll tell you, I've been arguably prepared, and I'm grateful, having some things that I've had control over and many that I didn't. But it then becomes a function of, am I willing? And it's the same for you and for any of your listeners as well, that who among us are willing to take up the task? Because our nation demands no less of us at this time. It's easy if you're at all like me. I've always thought, hey, I hope somebody steps up. I hope somebody stands in the gap. I hope somebody comes forward. But sometimes we're the somebody. The somebody is always somebody, and why should it not be us at times? And so who among us will stand in the gap? We need citizen legislators of the ilk that our founding fathers were, people who will step forward for finite periods of time to come from their farms, to come from their businesses, to step forward as public servants, to serve their fellow citizen, and then return back to where it was that they came from, as true statesmen always did. This idea that we have a career path of career politicians is part of what is destroying the fabric of this nation. It just is. I'd like to add to that. It's not just people who run for office. There's a lot of people out there who are not set up, they're not capable of running for office or, or serving in office, and that doesn't make them bad at all. I, I'm numerically challenged. I have to count things. I, I'm not a real uh, excellent – I couldn't make a CPA. It doesn't matter. We need CPAs, not in the IRS, of course. And we need people in every walk of life – Every person out there, you may not have worked. You're, you may be a kid who's just uh, in school or just out of school and hard to find a job. You may have been out of the workforce for a while being a homemaker, which doesn't mean you've worked any less hard. You may have, have uh, specific experience. You might be a welder. I, I run into people of all different backgrounds, and I look for what are they good at, what are they good at that they don't even know yet, and I ask them to step forward and, and do that. Anyone can knock on a door for a candidate or for an issue. Anyone can exactly. circulate a petition. My wife cooks, and she's not a political person. And when we have local meetings and she bakes cookies, well, you've been to, my God, how many of these meetings, sir? Uh, you go to these <laughs> things, and after an hour, well, your rear end is, is, is painful. And after two hours, your ears are bleeding. But if you have one of her cookies, you're, you had a good experience, and you're coming back. <laughs> that may not sound like much. But every single thing that can be added is helpful. And it doesn't have to be straightforward politics. There are a lot of interest groups. And every single issue that we can attack the, the so-called progressives, they're not. They're not progressives. They're not liberals. I respect progressives and liberals for having a different viewpoint if they're honest. The people in charge, whether it's Millionaire Mitch or... Um, Allison Grimes or, you know, Republican and Democrat are labels that mean very little. It's True. honest people who are willing to debate honestly and stay within the strictures of the Constitution that can see, solve all the problems of this country. And it won't come from Washington and the state capitals exclusively. So 
I met, last weekend I met uh, in a Pennsylvania um, militia summit, leaders of the, the militias across the state. And that's an important thing, which is to be prepared to assist in a, enforcing law, to insist lawmakers or law officers, that is, if they need our help and if they won't do their jobs or if they're the ones breaking the law, there needs to be someone to back up the law, which is the constitution of your particular state and the United States. Um, there are interest groups that I work with, like Americans for Prosperity, which are entirely economic and nonpartisan. And then there are interest groups that deal with um, issues that I don't even consider necessarily religious issues. You touched on uh, your, your pro-life stance, and I share that with you. Um, that is a constitutional issue. You're attacking a person without giving them due process and depriving them of life and liberty. And in a painful and cruel manner, it's the same thing when they go after people who are too old or too sick and say, I'm sorry, under Obamacare, those death panels that Sarah Palin talked about are now coming online. Uh, we're going to deny you coverage because it's just not worth it. You're not a productive enough member of society. According to whom? So, folks, if you are in Kentucky or if you have some big money or if you can help on social media, candidates like Matt Bevan are worth it, in my opinion. But if you don't have those particular characteristics or if you have something else in mind, don't let that stop you from getting involved. There is no unimportant issue right now. And speaking of which, I would like to ask you a question. I mentioned sure. and I saw on uh, one of your, your uh, sites there uh, constitutional enumeration. Could you please explain to the audience what you would like to see in any sort of bill that the Senate has to consider once you get elected? Well, you know, that's really, that phrase is often associated most specifically with the Tenth Amendment, but it's one where, frankly, in my opinion, you know, constitutional enumeration is really a reference to the fact that if you are going to sponsor or co-sponsor or debate or vote on any piece of legislation, that you should clearly spell out what power in the Constitution has given authorization to that piece of legislation? Where is in the Constitution, where is the enumeration or the power given for that particular uh, proposal? And so enumeration is we talk, often talk about which powers are enumerated to the federal government, which to the states. And the Tenth Amendment makes clear those not clearly enumerated or spelled out to either are the responsibility of the states and of the people. And I believe in that. I firmly believe in that. And so if, in fact, there is no constitutional justification, then it should be the responsibility of the states and the people, period. Thank you. Um, speaking well, of which... Real quick, Dan, real quick, yeah, Dan uh, I want to bring, bring in another caller. Uh, I want to bring in Joseph. And also, oh, before I do that, I want to mention that uh, we have here uh, in the chat here from Liberty Thunder, which is another radio show here on Blog Talk Radio, conservative radio show. So thank you very much, uh, Liberty Thunder. I believe that's Rex Christie, one of the hosts of the show, which I believe uh, is on Sunday evenings, Easter, I believe 9 or 10 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, so you can find that on Blog Talk Radio as well. And that show is Liberty Thunder. And thank you very much. Uh, I see you there in the chat. It's great to have you here. So it's a great I'm show. Gonna bring in I'm going to bring in Joseph. Thank you very much, uh, Joseph, uh, for coming to the show. And uh, if anyone else would like to chime in, just call us at 347-945-7428. 
And I do see it. someone else uh, called in, and uh, we'll be bringing you in from 502, and we'll be bringing you in after James. So go ahead, Joseph. Well, thank you for having me on, Robert. Uh, first of all, Mr. Bevan, I want to uh, commend you for the valiant campaign you're waging. Uh, I know many conservatives like me who have been following your campaign from the beginning uh, can agree that uh, you uh, have fell to a barrage of negative uh, and unfair attacks from the beginning uh, from Mitch McConnell's campaign trying to define you uh, instead of letting the truth get out there. And, uh, you know, uh, the the fact that various conservative uh, outlets such as Freedom, Freedom Works, the Senate conservative funds are backing you uh, shows that you have uh, great support and great respect amongst the conservative base uh, who do not uh, like, who do not associate themselves with the establishment GOP. Uh, my question to you is, uh, if you had to sum it up, what would be a compelling, positive narr- narrative of your of yourself? in contrast to Mitch McConnell, and why do you believe you should be the guy to replace Mitch McConnell? I'm a, I am a man who is raising a family in this environment. I'm the only one in this race on either side raising a family in this environment. I'm the only one on either side who has served our nation in uniform. And I'm the only one on either side who has ever created a job that the taxpayers haven't paid for. And while none of those things are unique, none of those things in combination are unique. But I'll tell you, they are remarkably unusual and rare among our elected officials in Washington. And if we don't start to elect men and women who understand from personal experience how the wealth of this nation is created, and I've employed even now dozens and dozens of people across the companies that I own, and through the years have created opportunities for hundreds of people, We have got to elect men and women who understand personally how this happens. Or we will, as Margaret Thatcher noted, soon enough run out of other people's money, and then the gig is up. I appreciate you answering that because I think that's what a lot of voters uh, want to hear. Uh, A lot of uh, conservatives like me are appalled by the Schmier campaign that McConnell has been running against you from the beginning, uh, kind of definitely taking a page out of Obama's playbook there. Uh, it is. You know, it's funny. He, he he told us that he was going to run a presidential-style campaign, literally. That's what McConnell has said from the beginning. He didn't. We are now understanding which president he was looking to emulate. You're absolutely right. I definitely agree. Very hypocritical. Actually, uh, there was a Tea Party spokesman by the name of Scott Hofstra, who is also backing you, and uh, he uh, quoted, uh, a 30-year senator has to resort to negative attacks and slandering in order to try to win his race, and unfortunately it works. And uh, many people, I just want to say, respect you that from the beginning you try to run a gentleman's campaign and you try to uh, stick to the facts but uh, unfortunately, Mitch McConnell has turned this into a schmear campaign because I agree with your opening statements at the beginning of the show. When you have a poor record to run on, what do you do? The only thing you can resort to is a schmear campaign. But my right. only concern here is that uh, uh, 
several polls have McConnell up by double digits. Now, I, I'm very confident that uh, polling is not exactly very accurate because back in the 2012 elections, uh, even a day prior to the presidential elections between Mitt Romney and President Obama, and the six battleground states, they had several polls with uh, Romney in a dead heat or a point behind, and then on election day, he wound up looting, uh, uh, losing by a landslide. But um, I definitely believe that if you can knock off Mitch McConnell, you will be able to reinvigorate the Tea Party. <laughs> yeah. Let me, I mean, let me address that real quickly. I think you're right, but let me address these polls. When I began, I was 50-something percent behind in the polls. Then the next time they ran a poll, I was 40-something percent behind. Then he spent a few more million dollars, and I was 30-something percent behind. He spent another million or two, and I was 20-something percent behind. The last time a public poll was taken was in uh, February. Uh, there were a couple of them, Rasmussen and Bluegrass uh, poll, and both of them showed me down in the low to mid-20s. But that is less than half of where I was down just a few months before. So every time a poll has been taken, I've closed the gap. And interestingly, it was only then that he decided to declare victory. The irony is that no matter how much money he spends, every time a poll is taken, I have gained and he has lost. And another thing that people forget is that when Mitch McConnell ran for Senate 30 years ago, three months to go before the primary, with less than three months to go actually, he was more than 40% down in the polls. So polls really only matter on election day. That is that more than anything is the poll that matters. We are doing unbelievably well among people on the ground, which is why I found out two weeks ago Mitch McConnell is apparently now calling people I went to high school with. He is a very oh, nervous wow. man. And so he is he knows he's not doing well, which is why he's still scratching for dirt anywhere he can hopefully find it. I wish him luck on that front. It's why he'll go back to making up more because that's the only thing he's got. Well, sure. I mean, definitely that's the only reason why he's focusing millions of dollars on negative ads against you because he knows you've been a viable contender from the beginning. He knows you pose I'll an existential you. threat to eliminating him. And believe me, I want to see you, like every conservative patriot, knock him uh, out of the out, out of out of the. Uh, primary so he doesn't even make it to the general election and I believe if you do that and I have every confidence that you can pull it off Mr. Bevan that you will reinvigorate the Tea Party because right now many people are disillusioned with the Tea Party because we lost momentum after 2010 I believe like many conservatives after we won we became too complacent and we lost that jive that we had and uh, in 2012 when the Tea Party tried to reemerge, we lost a lot of critical races. And so people, I believe, will begin to take the Tea Party more seriously if they can see that we can actually start winning key races. And I think that begins on May the 20th with you, Mr. Bevan. You knocking off uh, Mitch McConnell not only is so crucial for the Tea Party and conservative movement, but it is also very symbolic because I believe that it will give back and earn back people that trust that they need, that they can say we can not only support the Tea Party and true conservatives like you with words, but we can support them with actions and, and with money, back them up with actual funds. 
And I think many people are reluctant to go to that step of funding campaigns to the extent where they can be successful is because they haven't seen many positive results. And so I think you are the best chance out of the eight primary races that are currently being run nationally against GOP incumbents. I believe, Mr. Bevan, you have the greatest chance. And uh, I hope you you just stay consistent as you've been doing. And if you can knock him off, I have every confidence that you can be that 1A player that can give the Tea Party that re that reemergence that they need that 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 fire in the belly as Sarah Palin has been touting has been lost, and I believe it begins on May the twentieth. And Mr. Bevan, uh, good luck. But uh, great leaders like you, in my opinion, don't need any luck. That's more of a saying. I wish you. Thank I know you. you will do well. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And for your listeners, those tonight again. Go to my website, mattbevan.com. Get engaged. Help us. You can People can make calls from anywhere in the country into Republican primary voters here. We can hook people up with the ability to call, as, as the uh, earlier speaker was noting. People can get engaged at any number of levels. And if people are here in Kentucky, they can walk, they can knock, they can talk to people. You can use social media. You can go online. You can post comments. In, in comment sections and point people to our campaign, I'd be grateful. And there are other great campaigns around the country. There are the Milton Wolfs in Kansas and the Greg Brannons in North Carolina and the Chris McDaniels in Mississippi and the, and the Sasses in Nebraska, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of good folks running for office that need help and support. So I'd be grateful, and I know they would as well. Thank you, Mr. Bevan, for your time. I appreciate it. Sure. Well, definitely, folks, uh, check out uh, check out Mr. Bevan's website and, and give whatever support uh, that you can. Because as Joseph pointed out, it is a very important race um, in many ways, very symbolically and concretely. And at this time, I do want to bring in uh, another one of our panelists, and that is James. Uh, thank you very much, uh, James, for coming to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Robert. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing really good. Uh, very happy to have our guest on. Uh, tonight, then you, the floor is yours, uh, whichever you'd like to say or ask uh, Mr. Bevan. Well, I just uh, real quick, I won't, I won't drag this part out, but uh, just a little announcement. I won't be on your show on Wednesday next week, and I just want to let you know ahead of time. The reason being is I'm quite certain I will be exhausted from handing out articles of impeachment to Congress uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. Now, if not, if I am on the road, I will go ahead and call in and give you an update as to how that went. But uh, oh, great. I, will be, I will be leaving on Sunday morning, head to Washington, D.C., to meet up with a, with a team of, team of uh, patriots from Operation American Spring and overpasses, and we will, be, uh, we will be walking through those six buildings and handing out 535 packets, and hopefully they'll they'll get something started before May 16th when when everybody shows up for American Spring. Um, so yeah, I just want to let everybody know that. And uh, well, I appreciate you know. that. Yeah, can next week and next week, uh, James. Speaking of James, we'll have another James on uh, next week uh, as our guest, and that is James Carr, who is running for Congress in Virginia. So folks, uh, look forward to that. Go ahead, James. Well. Um, just a couple of questions there, Matt. As far as, you know, you talked about the budget or as far as our, you know, how we should 
you know, spend our federal money responsibly, and everything you said was great. Um, you know, we're currently 18 trillion and counting in debt. What what can, what would you do to try to rein in federal spending? We need absolute cuts. And by absolute cuts, I mean, you've heard of any number of iterations of things like the penny plan. The penny plan is simply the idea of cutting an absolute 1% out of the federal budget on an annual basis. Not not patting ourselves on the back for sequestration where we spend 4% more instead of 8% more and feel like we've accomplished something. The reality is we need to cut absolute spending. There's not one listener, not one person in America who in 2014 could not live off of 99 cents of what they lived off of in 2013. There's there's no way that anybody couldn't live on 1% less if they had to of necessity. And we should demand and expect no less of our federal government, which is broke. And in fact, now spending 40 cents of every dollar borrowed from future generations. It's irresponsible, and we need to start cutting across the board in an absolute fashion in order to rein this back in. Well, that's uh, that sounds sounds very good. I mean, you know, we have, we've got to do something to to rein that in. Um, as far as uh, border, border security, I mean, obviously, it's not a great big immediate issue in Kentucky. Uh, you know, but we do have an illegal immigrant, Im- illegal alien problem all over America. What do you what do you recommend we would do to that to to fix that? Well, I tell you, it's interesting. We may not be a border state, but we are one of the fifty states of these United States, and it is a problem for every state, as you know. And I'll tell you, we are the reason people come here both legally and illegally is above all, we are a nation of laws. And as a nation of laws, the last thing we should do is punt the first one for people upon their arrival. I think that's ridiculous. We shouldn't have, hey, don't worry, the first law's on us kind of attitude. We should enforce the borders. We should enforce the laws on the books and secure the border to the absolute degree possible, and we have the ability to do so. We are choosing intentionally not to do so, and I think it's a mistake. To reward illegal behavior is wrong at many levels. It sets a bad precedent, both for those individuals, and it is an insult to those who have come here legally and have paid their dues to do things the right way. So that's my stance on that in a nutshell. Well, so far we're batting a 1,000. Uh, <laughs> um, what do you uh, – do you support uh, the impeachment of, of Barack Obama for the, the things he's done while, he, while in office? Well, I'm running for U.S. Senate. And obviously, as a senator, that would not be my prerogative to initiate that. That's just initiated in the House. But certainly, if that came before me in the Senate, I would uh, I would not be disappointed at the ability to weigh in on such a thing. And what I mean by that is I think there are any number of actions taken, not only by this president and this administration as a whole, that that make things like Watergate seem like child's play by comparison. And I tell you, we need to start to take the oath of office of our congressmen seriously. We just do. And so I well, think with respect to the initiation of this, of course, it would be, need to be initiated in the House. And it sounds like uh, at least, I don't know if it was you or a previous speaker that is, uh, that is looking to, uh, I think it was you that was saying next week you're going to be trying to do something about that. 
Yeah, that yeah, that was me, and and yeah, it's uh yeah, it does begin in the house, but you know, of course, the trial itself is goes on in the Senate, and that's why that's why I was curious with that. Uh, right. You know, everybody everybody in Congress is involved, and it's you know it's important. Yeah, it's important that we get people up there that, that understand the rule of law, and, and we've got a lawless president up there right now, so that's a, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I've actually, just to let you know, I have actually passed your uh, your website onto my our, my Kentucky group. I'm in the I'm the founder of Overpass for America. I don't know if you've seen us out there, but we got oh, out there. Oh, of course, absolutely. Yeah, yeah okay. and you've well, got some strong people here in Kentucky. You really do. I've met a number of them. Well, good, good. Well, I passed the word on to our administrator out there, and they're going to get a hold of your campaign headquarters. And if we could get some signs and banners and whatnot to carry out there on those overpasses to let people know, give give you a little old-school stoping, uh, we'd be real happy to do that for you. I'd be grateful. We've done a lot of it, and and the more the 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 better, really and truly. Um. Well, definitely, if we could get some contact, you know, at some point off the air, of course, uh, unless there's a, a website or an email you'd like to give uh, Matt for no, I mean, him to be able to contact you to, to be able to you guys to work together on that. Yeah, if you just reach, literally anybody can reach us. This through mattbevin.com, M-A-T-T-B-E-V-I-N.com. There's places where you can literally just click to connect uh, with with us directly. I would encourage you to do so, please, and we'll be happy to see what we can do to hook that up. Oh, absolutely, yeah, great. and I, I actually just to let you know, my my Facebook page has got over eight, almost eighty thousand people on there, and I just uh, put an ad on there for you to tell people to pitch, Mitch, and vote for you as well, and to spread the I word. I appreciate so Hopefully, it. that'll get around. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Also, I'd like to take uh, this opportunity to welcome uh, Peaches Duncan into the chat. Uh, it's a new name I see there in the chat, and I want to welcome you to the show. So I hope you're enjoying it. We'd like to see you uh, in there on subsequent shows. But at this time, I do want to bring in one of our panelists, our conservative activist, Cindy Todd. So thank you very much, Cindy, for coming to the show. How are you? Well, I'm doing great. And um, I welcome you, Matt. I'm so glad you're here. And I'm so glad that you have thrown your hat into the ring. We really need people like you and... uh, I look around the nation at some of the people who are running this year, against, especially against the uh, establishment Republicans, and there are just some incredible candidates, but we have to get the word out um, and get people to understand <clears throat> the importance of uh, sticking with our roots and sticking with our, our uh, you know, our our political philosophy of less government, I mean, the Reaganism. And um, um, I, look at, I look at how in the Republican establishment, what, what their strategy has been, and you have to ask yourself, do they, are they just that stupid? Or, it, you know, to see how badly their strategy is failing I mean, Mitch McConnell, if he wins this election, don't they understand that he's going to lose in the general election? Because you can't activate your base. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you, James. I'm glad that um, you're going to do so. I was hoping that you were going to change the focus a little bit, you know, close to the election. and Because uh, I know here in, in uh, Daytona we were going to be doing – 
some political stuff um, uh, on our, not just focusing on impeachment, but um, also focusing on uh, some candidates, too. So that's a good thing. That's one way to really get the, the word out. It's It's been a marvelous way to get word out. Um, but <clears throat> what, Matt, I want to know what you want from us the most. What Do you need more money? Is that more important to you than boots on the ground or, you know, equally both? What do you need us to do? We need in some we need both and that's that's it's sad but true but we do need we do need money and then again it it can come from small places but you all touch a lot of people and a lot of people times a little bit can go a long way my support all comes from the little people i don't get the big packs and lobbyists maxing out to me and that's okay but i'll tell you something we need that because this will help us to fuel the airwaves which is what we need to do to get out there to be known but we do need boots on the ground for people who can physically come, for people that can make calls, for people that can blog, for people that can hit comment sections after articles are written and just point people to MattDevin.com, to point people to this campaign. We need any kind of the grassroots innovation that any and all of you have used in the past, whether it's sign-waving on overpasses or people making phone calls into Kentucky from their own living rooms. We need all the above. We really do. And I'd be grateful for anybody that could help on these. What has your, uh, you know, I'm here in Florida, so we don't get your ads here. What are you putting on your ads? What 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 message are you getting out? Are you, are you like, are you saying, are you using uh, Mitch McConnell's Record. Um, yes, I mean we're trying to draw. We're drawing a clear distinction between he and I on some things we talked about at the front set of this call. In differences between him and me, he and I, as it relates to Obamacare, for example, as it relates to the debt ceiling, as it relates to the cronyism that exists between he and the big business, big labor, and, and he as a part of big government and myself with respect to the constitution not sometimes not when it's convenient or not bits and pieces but all of it all the time these are the types of issues there's their issue we're talking about things of substance he wants to go personal he wants to be negative he wants to make it a, a like a mudslinging contest but i know this if you climb in the trough with a pig you both get muddy, muddy and the pig likes it and so I just, I'm not going to play that game. And to me, this isn't an eighth grade popularity contest. We're running for U.S. Senate. He refuses to debate because he's a coward and because mm -hmm. he can't defend his record. And it's shameful yeah. that the people of Kentucky are being treated like fools by somebody who we've been paying for 30 years. It's a shame. I don't go there in my advertising. My advertising is specific to issues in his track record that people should be aware of and specifically things that I am a proponent of, as in a constitutionally limited government, a balanced budget amendment, less you know, taxation, less regulation, more individual liberties, not an encroachment of our uh, Fourth Amendment rights through the NDAA and the, and, and the Patriot Act, things of this sort. These are the things that I'm talking about every day on the campaign trail and in my advertising. That's a very important um attitude and I'm really happy to hear you say that because um after uh, you win this and notice I said after you win this you will 
um, after you win the nomination, you're going to need the help of uh, a lot of Republicans who had supported Mitch McConnell. And as long sure. as you haven't uh, burned any bridges, then, you know, you have that support right there ready exactly. for you. No, that's now, a, that's a, and to me it's a sad <clears throat> approach to take. Is I don't need to slander or burn other people in order to make myself look good. I really don't. I don't need or want this job badly enough to mislead people about what I believe or to try to personally slander other people. That's just the that's what's wrong with politics. And I think that's one of the key mistakes the Republican establishment is making all across the country. Is uh, um, antagonizing Christians, antagonizing uh, patriots, antagonizing Tea Party members, um, and, and then when it comes time for them to need their vote, they don't have it, and they they either stay home or they just don't vote. Now, um, <clears throat> Mitt, um, Harry Reid has changed some uh, uh, some what do you call it um, rules of the Senate. He has changed the way they do certain things. Um, he's basically um, taken away the, um, um, the ability it? to vote for cloture. It's specific. It's specific. Yeah. What he's done is he's overturned 235 years of precedent, precluded uh, without 60 votes the ability to jam certain nominations through the Senate, and that's what he has is, uh, overturned, and Mitch McConnell has given him carte blanche to do that without any right. real effort to the contrary. And shame on him for doing it. Shame on him, yes. on Harry Reid, for attempting it, and shame on Mitch McConnell for doing it. And it's most specifically related to judicial nominees and specifically so that Democrats could pack the D.C. Court of Appeals. That really was the real impetus behind this. Right. Well, um <clears throat> I, I know that people are going to say, well, but if you get rid of Mitch McConnell, then we've lost uh, a lot of power. He had a lot of power in the Senate, and if we win the majority in the Senate and then we don't have Mitch McConnell with his power to back it up, um, we won't be able to get as much done. What do you say to that? Well, I say, indeed, to the extent that that power exists, what has it been used for? It has been yeah. used to threaten conservatives, to promise to punch them in the nose and to crush them. It has been used to break the back of any effort by Ted Cruz and Mike Lee for fiscal responsibility and to vote for cloture to ensure that a clean debt ceiling bill with no cuts was given to the president. It's been used to appoint Marco Rubio to the Gang of Eight to sell this to conservatives. It's been used to vote for the funding of Obamacare and to ensure that that piece of flawed legislation was jammed down the American people's throats. This mm -hmm. power and influence, to the extent that it actually exists, has been used over and over and over again to do things that undermine everything that conservatism is about. And so, frankly, we don't need more of this power and influence if, indeed, that's what that is. I would love to see anything even closely approximating the level of energy that he has applied to crush and make light of the efforts of patriots to fight anything that the Obama administration or Harry Reid have put forward. He doesn't put a fraction of the energy into that. 
The man is a he's a he's a he's a he's a, he's a naked emperor, is what he is. That's exactly what I was hoping you would say. Very good way of putting it. Very good way of putting it. Uh, But at this time, I'm going to go ahead and bring it back to Dan. And before we do that, uh, anyone who is listening, you're welcome to chime in and become a part of our roundtable discussion by calling us at 347-945-7428. I did see someone out there who was also in the 502 area uh, that called in, and it looks like uh, they either got disconnected or hung up, so you're welcome to call back again and join us at 347-945-7428. Um, thank you very much, uh, Dan. I don't know uh, exactly how much time uh, that you'll be able to give us tonight, uh, Matt. So, you know, whatever time, of course, you're able to spend with us, uh, we really appreciate it. But, you know, we this is, you know, part of the time where we do what we call a roundtable discussion after, like, the interview and question portion. Uh, so we really appreciate the, the time that you spend with us tonight. You're very welcome. I was supposed to be with you till 10:30, but I'm driving, so it turned out to be to be good. I, I was parked for a while, and then I just figured I'd head on down the road and hopefully not lose the signal. So I'm delighted to have been with you this time. Okay, great. So um, if you have to go, then is there any uh, parting things, or if you could spend uh, some more time, it's, it's up to you, of course. Uh, so my choice. I can stay with you for about another five minutes or so if that works. If somebody wants to call in, or if you have other questions. I'd be happy to address them. I have, sure, I have one question real quick, Robert, and I'll, I'll just ask it and stop. Um, if every time Mitch McConnell spends money, you gain in the polls, what do we have to do to get him to spend more money? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, there's a, uh, he's, I've heard he's about to do a big buy right now. Uh, but, of course, you know, it, it really has helped in some measure, but at the same time, it's because he is so unpopular. He really... The more people are aware of an alternative, the more they're willing to throw him out. They want out of the pan. They just want to make sure they're not jumping into the fire. That's where we do need support. For people that can contribute, I would be grateful because financially we need to be able to put our message out there as well, not just our name as a result of being on the receiving end of his noise. You know, um, Mr. Bevan, what Joseph was saying about the polls and what you've mentioned about the polls is telling. However, we should take a page from Organizing for America, Obama's group, because what they did, if you look at it on a nonpartisan basis, it was extremely effective. What it, the bottom line is getting out the vote, whether it's money spent exactly. on advertising, bringing up people's awareness, or simply neighbors making absolutely certain that their neighbors and their friends and their coworkers and everybody who's entitled to vote in that area actually makes it to the polls and actually goes in that booth and actually casts a vote. That's what wins, bottom line. And this is a primary, folks. Uh, exactly. What, even with great weather, even with nothing else going on, the turnout is always low in a primary because most Americans are not awake yet. If you're awake and you're energized and you can bring some people with you, believe me, you can make a difference. We've been having votes that have hinged on a very, very few. In fact, uh, I've mentioned this before. In my township, we defeated um, the broken windows theory that, uh, that, that Agenda 21 light by one vote, one vote. And I hope we don't. Uh, have you winning by just one vote, Mr. Bevan, because I don't want to see a recount. I'd like to see you win oh. hands down. Yeah, that'd be terrible. And I know we only have a few minutes left before uh, he's got to go, and I do want to bring in uh, somebody just called who's uh, I know near and dear to many of our hearts, and that's Harriet. Thank you very much, Harriet, awesome. for coming to the show. How are you? Yes, hi. Um, 
Mr. Bevan, I am really, really, really enthused with you, and I support you 100%. I'm from Florida, but I'm going to make be making calls to Kentucky. The reason Thank I'm you. calling, you welcome. The NRA is now endorsed McConnell. We know that there are fake Tea Party candidates if you just look at the Virginia government race. We Republicans need to stick together. The Democrats are currently funding Tea Party fakes in order to uh, please the Democrat gun grabbers and baby killers in office to rape and rob America further. What do you say on that behalf? The NRA has endorsed him, but the NRA typically does endorse the uh, the incumbents. It's become uh, somewhat political, uh, which is the nature of large organizations domiciled in in Washington D.C. And that's that's the nature of such things. I I have the gun owners of America have endorsed me. I have their support. I have the support of many members of the NRA. I was at a gun show. Uh, in Kentucky uh, this past weekend where there were thousands and thousands of participants and they cleaned out every sign and piece of material we have literally. So I, the real gun owners and supporters are supporting my candidacy and I'm grateful for that. Okay. We're, I'm happy to hear that and I will pass that message on. So, with that, folks, I want to go ahead and, and, and bring it to you, uh, Mr. Bevan. Thank you very much uh, for spending all the time you did with us on the show and, and coming on. And we wish you uh, the best of luck. And I would like to give uh, the last, of course, moments you're here with anything you'd like to have any parting words. Well, I mean, are you giving that to me? I'm sorry, Robert. Yes, that's, that, that's to you, uh, yeah. Matt. Oh, yeah, no, I appreciate it. I want to give you anything you want to get out before you have to go. Yeah, no, all I would say is, again, please be as engaged as you are to the points that were noted. Turn people out with you. This is our government. Do not allow people who do not have the best interest of ourselves, our children, our liberties, and our nation to hijack this political process. You are correct. The the point that was made with respect to low turnout among primary voters, they do tend to be low turnouts, which is our opportunity. Exercise our voice. Get to the polls and be heard. This is our time. This is our race. We can win this. We will win this. If those who think as we think, and we are many, actually turn us to vote. So I would encourage people, again, I don't mean to beat it to death, but if you want to help in this race, go to MattBevan.com and get engaged. But do me a favor and plug that everywhere you can, on every website, in every Facebook posting, on Twitter. Push this race out there. We have got to light a fire. The election is five weeks from now. Five weeks from yesterday is when this election is. I need help. Push it out there, and if people can contribute financially, I'd be grateful. I really would. You can do that on our website as well. Well, now, one of the things, uh, groups we belong to here on Bard's Logic Political Talk is the Patriot Journalist Network. And I'd say uh, check it out by going to www.patriotjournalist.com. And there are things that they do, you know, or we do, rather, uh, which <clears throat> like Twitter bombs for candidates, things like that. We did that for um, – a Greenwald, uh, Peter Greenwald, when he was running uh, for his campaign for his primary. Uh, so that might be something you might want to check out and see if I can contact uh, the founder of that, Mark Prasik, and see if there's any way we can use those resources to, to help out your campaign. 
So that, folks, uh, and for him, is at www.patriotjournalist.com. Whoops. I lost you there for a second, but... Yeah, I mean, those are the kind of things that are... Those things are very powerful. And to the extent that people can can help us with that, I would be grateful. Great. Well, I'll give uh, Mark a call. We'll we'll definitely discuss that, and then what we'll do is we'll contact you through your page... uh, and try to you know make something happen to there. That would be that'd be outstanding. This is how these races are won. This is how we the people exercise our constitutional rights. And I'll tell you, I applaud all of you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your attention to this race and to the cause of liberty. I'm grateful. Thank you so much. You are. Well, thank you very much, and you take care and, and good luck with your campaign. And hope to talk to uh, Senator Bevan in the near future. Thank you. Look forward to it. Take care. You too. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. I'll tell you what, Bob. Uh, the, the okay, folks, and that that was Matt Bevan, who we will hear next week on March the 1st. So look forward to that for his gubernatorial campaign. And we'll definitely uh, get a hold of the Patriot Journalist Network as well and see uh, what we can possibly do this time around uh, for his campaign because we definitely would like to see someone uh, such as Matt Bevan uh, in some kind of uh, office because we really need grassroots uh, politicians like himself. Uh, So, Kelly, I was going to see if uh, we still got you on the line. Kelly, you're still there. Okay, looks like uh, Kelly had to uh, step away. So, uh, again, folks, I want to thank everyone uh, for coming to the show tonight. And we just want to uh, remind you to uh, share the link of tonight's show uh, for people can listen to our previous interview with Matt Bevan, get a little bit more insight uh, on him, uh, and to prepare us for uh, listening for some more of him next week uh, when we'll have him, as I said, on April the 1st. And so what I'll do is I will end tonight as I do every night. And that would be with the song by Aubrey Ashburn. And you can hear more of her music by going to www.aubreyashburn.com. And so good night, everyone. Take care, and we will see you later. Good night. Mm-hmm.